0: I think we need to do a wrap eventually. Oh, you. Yeah. You are now about to witness the strength of street knowledge. <laughs> wow. You awesome. <laughs> or not. Or That's not. That's the show. That's yeah. it. We're done. <laughs> You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 61. Subscribe to us and listen to. No, we're not redoing it. Keep going. <laughs> You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 61. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Visit us at codingblocks.net. We can find show notes, examples, discussion, and more. Send your feedback, questions,
1: and rants to comments at CodingBlocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at Coding Blocks or head to www.CodingBlocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that,
0: I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. Yeah, that re- intro joke didn't really come out the way I wanted it to. <laughs> I loved it.
2: <laughs> you should do like a booming bass voice and some distortion. Yeah. And some echo. I don't
0: have that. No, no. Yeah, you got logic, logic has right? everything. <sighs> so you're racing against the clock to wrap up three projects. Prepping for a meeting later in the afternoon, all while trying to tackle a mountain of paperwork. Welcome to life as a freelancer. Challenging? Yes, but our friends at FreshBooks believe the rewards are so worth it. The working world has changed. With the growth of the internet, there's never been more opportunities for the self-employed. To meet this need, FreshBooks is excited to announce the all new version of their cloud accounting software. It's been redesigned from the ground up and custom built for exactly the way you work. Get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid quickly. The all new FreshBooks is not only ridiculously easy to use, It's also packed full of powerful features. Create and send professional-looking invoices in less than 30 seconds. Set up online payments with just a couple clicks and get paid up to four days faster. See when your client has seen your invoice and put an end to the guessing games. FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our listeners. To claim it, Just go to freshbooks.com slash coding and enter coding blocks in the how did you hear about us section.
1: All right. So let's kick off the show here. Let's start off with our usual podcast news. So the first up is our iTunes reviews. And in that we have Colter Cotton, conservative programmer, RW Cheese, Sean H, Sean H. Wow. My eyes just went blurry. C.C. Kessler. Marv the Robot, and Alex11132.
2: And citrus back up, so we've got uh, some extra reviews here this week. Um, big thanks to Rip, Adam Whitehurst, Alan is clearly the best, <laughs> Only Bavarian Beer is Beer, Clegg89, Danifia God's Short Bus, styley, <laughs> The Eye of Brows, and Edgar the Bunny.
1: Dude, those are some stellar names. <laughs> the Eye of Brows, God's yeah. Short Bus. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, that's, that's so wrong. All right, uh,
2: what, are you not even going to mention Alan is clearly the best?
1: Well, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that one, right? I mean, <laughs>
2: <laughs> there's nothing funny about that. <laughs>
1: uh, Ego much? No, not at all. Uh, hey, so guys, <laughs> seriously, thank you for the reviews. I, by the way, Egbert the Bunny, I do want to call his out just a little bit because he he hit on. What has been most important to us when we started this podcast was making information that people can use, right? And you can go back and listen to again and again and continue to use and learn and just revisit. And that was awesome that somebody, you know, saw that that's what we're doing. and, And we really try hard for that. So thank you very much for pointing it out. Thank you all of you for your reviews. I mean, very much enjoy them. So thanks.
2: And for the full show notes, make sure to go ahead to the website and uh, visit cookingbox.net/episode slash episode 61. Yes. Oh, so we were on Slack in our
1: amazing Slack group, and and hopefully you've noticed that our sound quality has improved drastically, probably what, in the past 10 episodes. I don't even know how long it's been now, but that is in no small part due to Aztag, who put together a template for us, who he's an audio engineer and, and a software developer, and he put together this template. So things sound great. And he hit us up the other day and he was like, Hey, check out this, this app that I put in the iTunes store. I was like, Oh really? Cool. Awesome. So we're going to have a link in the show notes here, but really other than just giving him a shout out and having you guys spread the word, If you know any dentists that have tools, the air tools specifically that, you know, are expensive to maintain, or if you are a dentist and for some reason you're interested in software development, go check this out. But here's the cool part. What I really liked about this is the whole purpose of the application is to find out when a tool might be failing or when it needs some maintenance because it's not operating at its best efficiency. And if you've ever been to a dentist's office and you hear that high pitch whining noise as they're getting ready to cram some sort of device in your mouth, that's what we're talking about. These things that have really fast moving parts. He approached this totally different than what a lot of people would. So Basically, even says it in the description on the application that they listen to the harmonics, the sound of the instrument itself. Now, it has to be an air-driven tool, but they inspect that to find out, is this thing operating the way it should be? And if it's not, then there'll be a warning. And all you have to do is hold your iPhone up next to this thing, have it listening to it, and it'll tell you if it's in good operating standing. So... The cool part is this thing's like eighteen bucks, US dollars, I think seventeen ninety nine. Um mm-hmm. and what he said is the reason the whole idea came up is typically you have to have a really expensive like laser tool that will identify whether or not the thing's operating properly, and they're usually a couple thousand dollars or more. So this would allow doctors to use their little, you know, their their iPhone that they already have, pay eighteen bucks and potentially have something much cheaper and easier to use. Or yeah, I don't the want anything patient, breaking in my
2: mouth.
0: <laughs> or as the patient you could like you know double check the doctor before hopefully before he starts putting those tools on your teeth oh that's amazing yes
1: everybody go buy this and just have this thing sitting next to your face as they're cramming the device in <laughs> i your feel mouth. like it's
0: important that we support our community and since since he's a part of the community we should definitely buy this and you know next time you go to the dentist just you know check your your dentist's equipment for him
1: yep definitely so uh, huge kudos to him for putting it out there. Awesome, and you know, again, hopefully you guys will share that and go take a look at it. So,
2: uh, it's really cool uh, approach for solving problems too. Like when you first mentioned it, I initially thought like maybe tracking the usage and then you know looking at some stats to figure out if it's time to to maintain it, but. That's a total different way of solving a problem.
1: Yeah, and I was thinking IoT, right? Like putting some sort of sensors in the device so that it would know when parts were wearing or whatever. But it, it just goes to show that people who work in different areas think about problems differently. So it, it's just amazing to me. I loved it.
2: Yeah, very cool. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention on uh, last episode, I actually tweeted Eric Evans, who wrote the, uh, the book, uh, Domain-Driven Design, and I asked him about some open source um, examples of domain-driven design that we can maybe take a look at. And he actually wrote back, and um, I thought it was really interesting to say that um, most, uh, he said most open source projects are um, highly targeted towards kind of one domain. And so he didn't really have any great examples for us to look at. And so I thought that was um, that was really interesting to look at or to think about. And uh, so I guess this is, <clears throat> it ties more into what we've been talking about in the sense of that you would use domain-driven design more for like business or um. Just kind of the the normal, like, absolutely right for work and not so much uh, one-off open-source projects. But I just thought it was kind of interesting to to draw a line of distinction there between between the types of things that are open-source and the types of things that aren't.
1: Yeah. And also, let's, let's keep in mind, you tweeted somebody and he replied back to you, right? Like, this wasn't just, you know, hey, some dude down the street.
2: Yeah, we're living in the future.
1: <laughs> exactly. You know,
2: it's insane. that you, Like, 20, 30 years ago, you couldn't pick up the phone like, hey, Stephen King, I had a question about it. <laughs>
0: But, <laughs> Why do you not like clowns? That's right. Yeah. Uh,
2: now nobody
1: likes clowns. Thanks, Stephen King. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right, so next up, what I had, man. So this is this is somewhat random, somewhat related to what we do. Um, we've talked about phones in the past and technology and how some of it's all uh-huh. the same or whatever. So I got a new Galaxy S8 Plus, basically because they were just doing a killer sale on it. And I I was like, whatever, fine. Man, I loved it, and I straight up hated that phone for a month. And I hated that phone because that keyboard that ships from Samsung is the worst piece of garbage (laughs) I've ever used, man. Like I seriously got so mad at it. That I would stop replying to people because mm-hmm. it, it like I would feel this this bile rising, so I finally got mad enough to where I was like man I, I can't take it anymore, I have to change it so hey, this should have been a tip, but gboard it's the Google keyboard mm-hmm. that they've redone. it is
0: so good it you know how like Apple's keyboard is just really good in terms of mobile devices. Well, I was going to bring that up because that's one of the things that we talked about in the last episode related to the laptops was that was one of the things that they were touted as getting right on the iPhone, yep. you know, so many years back, was that they they got the keyboard on the iPhone correct, like it, that's what made that's what helped drive its success.
1: It, it's really good. I mean, the iPhone's good. <laughs> and surprisingly, if none of you guys have ever messed with it, Windows Phone keyboard, one of the best ever. It it was it was done incredibly well. So I'm actually excited to say that the Gboard keyboard that you can get, download for free or whatever, works extremely well. I I don't want to break my phone in half anymore. So anybody out there that, that picked up a Samsung Galaxy S8 or S8 Plus or any of those, man, disable that Samsung keyboard and go download the Gboard.
0: It's and also um, available for iPhone.
1: Oh, is it really? hmm Excellent. Really? Yep. It, it, it's kind of cool, too. I, I don't know that I love this or I hate it, but when you're typing, it will also somewhat inspect what you're reading and maybe give you relevant Google articles that you could literally just paste into or, or click and say, hey, make this part of my message.
0: At least on iPhone, I know that one of the things that they... Uh like how does like one of the features is being able to do a Google search inside of the keyboard yes. with whatever app you're in. Yes,
1: it's it's pretty cool stuff. I haven't messed with that feature as much. I was just so happy that the spacebar worked well. <laughs> I mean, it, it was it was aggravating. So, anyways,
0: yeah, but, I know. Like even on, I remember like uh, on the on the Nexus, I wasn't a fan of that built in, or or that that stock keyboard Yeah, either. it wasn't
1: great, and that was also a Google keyboard, but Mm -hmm. it was better than, like, seriously, the Samsung one, I don't know how anybody uses it. I I really don't, but anyways, so that was interesting. So, I want to touch briefly on the laptop. Before you go there? Yeah, yeah.
2: Sorry, just wanted to hop in there real quick and let you guys know, you know, we we talked about tweeting, we're talking about cell phones, so I went ahead and tweeted Stephen King and uh, gave him the next idea for his next (laughs) book or or movie, uh, A Cursed Cell Phone. That subtly <laughs> manipulates the text messages Ooh. by making the user angry. Did you really text him or tweet him? I DM'd him and I asked for a commission. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, what's the standard cut?
0: <laughs>
2: he hasn't replied yet.
1: Yeah, maybe he'll give you a byline in the credits.
2: Uh, <laughs> I'm also not sure this is actually Stephen King or you know some <laughs> other
1: <laughs> the the tweet name or handler is the Stephen King. Yes. Yeah. All right, cool. So the laptop update. I want to do it briefly here just because maybe some of you aren't going to, you know, this is where you're going to get the information. So as mentioned previously, I picked up the HP Spectre X360, the 15-inch with 512-gig drive, uh, 16 gigs of RAM, and the dual-core i7. And then I also picked up the Lenovo Yoga 720, also 15-inch, both 2-in-1 convertibles, uh, 512 gigs of SSD... 16 gigs of ram and this one actually had a quad core cpu and it had the nvidia gtx 1050 whereas the specter had the 940 mx so i spent a couple weeks with both of these things and honestly they're both good like like seriously they're both good
0: and wait do we do we want to say how he's right
1: yeah, you were right. Totally, <laughs> you, you were straight up right. Like, so at the end of, at, at the end of all this, what it boils down to is, first off, in the back of your mind, like when you know something's slightly wrong, you can't help it, right? Like it's it's gonna chew away at you. So, the spectre having the lower end graphics card and having the dual core processor instead of the quad core plus the higher end card, like it, it seriously, it mattered. <laughs> I mean, it mattered a lot to me. And the interesting part is, here, here's what I'll tell you, though. If God, you, it was pretty. I, that's the thing, man. Like, seriously, the Spectre, if If you're going to be doing just standard development work, it, like if you do Visual Studio stuff and or I, any other IDE, pick your choice, and, and your use case is browsing the web, checking your email, listening to music, all that, perfect device for all of it. it it'll get it all done. If you want to tinker with machine learning or you want to play video games on your device or any of that kind of stuff like it just makes way more sense to jump up to the to the yoga 720 it had the quad core i7 it had the nvidia gtx graphics
0: and i'm going to be putting these videos together Go but ahead. you're saying jump though. I mean, it wasn't like a huge price difference. Right? It was
1: cheaper. The Lenovo Yoga was cheaper oh, okay. than the I, HP Spectre. I thought that Spectre. was the one
0: that was more expensive. I'm no, sorry. it was cheaper. And that's the thing. If you want, just... oh, but a, it didn't. It was cheaper, but it didn't come with the pencil or the. It didn't come or with whatever the pen. they called the pen. It didn't yeah. come with a pen. So
1: I, I'm trying to remember. I think the the HP Spectre was thirteen ninety nine. The Lenovo Yoga was. 1350 maybe or it might have been 1299. I don't remember exactly, but the pen was $27. I bought the pen on Amazon. Here's here's I will say this for the creative person, for an artist, for somebody who wants to use this to draw and stuff, the Lenovo destroyed the HP. Mm-hmm. Like you could take the pen on the HP and and drag it across the screen, and it might not even register it, right? Oh. Yeah. And, and so you'd have to put a little bit of pressure on it. And if you've ever used these digital pens, as you put pressure, like the, the ink will get thicker or whatever. And so it was really hard to do like hairline, you know, lines on the page. You take the yoga pen that, that was on it, you drag it across it. You have just a hair thin line.
0: Okay. Now let me ask you this, because one thing that you, you've heard a lot about recently is the iPad Pro with the pencil? Ever since they introduced that last year, right? It, and yeah. that's supposed to be, you know, an amazing, it is. like paper-like thing. How did that compare? Because I know you have the iPad Pro with the pencil.
1: I do. So, I if if you are the creative person, so the thing that's super cool about the pencil that I, I made fun of before I actually used it. The name. The pen. Yeah, the name. <laughs> because I'm like, it's it's what really? Come well, on. Everyone else calls it a pen. It, right. So. Here's what I'll say. When you're using the iPad Pro, it's super slick. So you don't have that feeling like there's friction. Like if you're writing on a piece of paper type thing, right? Okay. So there's that. But you can, like, lean that thing and you can shade things. Like if you were truly doing it on a piece of paper. So in that regard. Like a pencil. Like a pencil, right. (laughs) Hence the name. So if you are the true artist and that's your goal, like the iPad Pro is really good. Like super good. If you're trying to use something that's going to be your all-in-one device, you want to do development on it, and you want to do artistic things like the yoga was excellent. Like the the feel of it, it had a little bit more friction to it, so it felt a little bit better. It tracked better. Uh, that kind of stuff was good. So so that aside, the artistic thing aside, gaming on it, dude. I, I loaded up Arc. You can play Arc on that ten on the. Uh, that's impressive,
2: huh? That's impressive. That game is a beast, yeah. dude.
1: So check it out. You could even play on high settings on that seven twenty. You put it on high settings. You drop the resolution down to ten eighty. Nobody's gaming on four K on on a convertible. Right? Okay,
0: but can you get a decent game of Who's Your Daddy going on it?
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know that game. <laughs> <laughs> I what? don't know either.
0: <laughs> no, you never played Who's Your Daddy. It, no,
2: <laughs> it's way down to Florida yet.
0: Oh my God! You you gotta check this game out. You're gonna. I'll leave it to you to go find, but basically it's, it's a two player game. You know, one person is the father and one person is the baby. I, okay. you're basically, okay, fine. You're making it weird. So let me, (laughs) let me finish this explanation. Then one person is playing as the baby and is trying to die. And the, and whoever's playing as the father Uh is trying to keep the baby alive. So it's like real life. Yes, pretty okay, much. Okay.
2: Got it. <laughs> uh, the screenshots are amazing by the way.
0: Uh, oh, who's awesome. your daddy?
2: <laughs> yeah,
1: very cool. So, so I will just throw out a few things. Like one of the interesting things is 1080p high settings on Arc on the 720 30 frames a second. And if you tweak some of the other settings, you can get it up close to 40 frames a second. Totally
0: playable, right? Okay. On the on the Spectre... Some gamers might have just, like, choked when you said that. But, yeah, go ahead. I, I mean, 60 is what you want for, <laughs> right. for playing, right? right?
1: But, no, it was smooth. Like, it wasn't jittery or jerky or anything. I'm sure if, if you had 20 dinosaurs on the screen, it was going to slow down. But, I mean, I'm talking about, like, I wasn't just standing out by some rocks. I was standing in a bunch of trees and jumping in the water and that kind of stuff. On the Spectre, nine. Nine frames a second? Nine frames? Nine. <laughs> oh, and wow. That's on high. If you wanted it to be playable on that one, you'd basically have to turn it down to low settings, drop the resolution. I mean, it it is what it is. Like, it's not a gaming video card. It it, it's one that would increase your ability to do some things, but it, you know, it would help you out in Photoshop. It would help you out in those things. So, all that said, keyboards, both of them, amazing. The HP was a little bit better than the Yoga, but neither one of them would you complain about. They both felt great. I I mean,
2: which. Which one are you going with?
1: So the the yoga is basically... So here's the thing, and I feel kind of like a jerk. I, I didn't keep either one of them.
2: Because, <laughs> oh, my gosh.
1: So here's so the reason... So I'm re- not here, right. So here's the reason why, and it had nothing to do with the fact that I didn't want either one of them. I actually want the yoga. Um, The problem is on their site, they have a one terabyte version of that same SSD for like a 100 bucks more. And so it's mm. like... You can't go buy a one terabyte SSD for a hundred dollars more, right? right? So that's the only reason. And I these took were M.2, dot two, right? These were M.2. Yeah, these yeah, are fast. You like, definitely can't go buy one of those for $100. No, nah, man. You're going to spend $400 on that thing, you know, bare minimum. So, at any rate, that's the only reason. I, I actually have been looking at it because it was out of stock the other day. Uh, but that I think that's actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to go pick that. Because I wanted the two-in-one, and I did find that even that 15-inch size wasn't too big. If you were kicking back in a chair and you wanted to read or something, it wasn't too big. So... Uh, That's like Best Buy's worst
2: nightmare, by the way. (laughs) Like, someone comes in, buys two really expensive laptops, yay! Uh, They return both and buy them online from Amazon.
1: (laughs) Man, and and dude, honestly, if they had had the one at Best Buy, they straight up do not sell the one terabyte version. It's not online, you can't get it in the store. And I was like, well, doggone it. You know, so I I do feel So, better
2: selection and cheaper prices on the internet. Actually, it's pretty pretty tough to compete with.
1: But this is from Lenovo's site, this isn't even from Amazon. This is literally you have to go to Lenovo to get this particular model.
0: Well, your right. comment on the four hundred dollars for the one terabyte, I made me kind of curious because I have been recently buying some equipment here, and and I was like, well, no, 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 it's a little bit more than that, right? Is it really? So if you wanted a, uh, the not the if you wanted the Samsung nine sixty, which is the latest you know iteration of their uh, NVMe SSD, not the pro version, okay, right. The EVA. One terabyte. That one's four eighty. So you're talking wow. about closer to five hundred dollars. If you wanted the pro version, you're jumping up even higher. And that's basically what comes in both of these. So, yeah. All right.
1: So well,
2: you're gonna have a full video, though, right?
1: Yeah, I'm gonna have. I'm. I'm going to have two separate reviews on the two machines, and then I'm gonna have one comparison of the two. So that's the plan. I, I'm going to be working on those this weekend. So, yep. Quick update on that one. And so now it's time to start getting into some things. So I said before the show, I feel silly. Every time I hear the word invariant, I'm like, man, I need to go Google that because I can't remember what it means, right? And I didn't feel too bad because both of you were like, hold on, let me Google <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so How you spell that? Right? So I thought it was worth at least bringing it up because it is a programming and mathematical term, and it has some relevance to de- to today's show. So I, I guess let, let's let's sort of break it down to the various different things we found. So an invariant, when you're talking about it, will always be true at the beginning and the end of an iteration. And Joe, you found something on this.
2: Yeah, we should probably say that it should be uh, true at the beginning and the end of an iteration. And one example that we saw online on Stack Overflow, and we'll have a link in the show notes, is that uh, a binary tree... And that's where one where um, the uh, ch- the children to the left are always less and the uh, children to the right are always uh, to the right. <laughs> the greater children are always to the right. Um, will always uh, The parent node will always have more children than any uh, child node. And that's just something that kind of makes sense intuitively, but you can use it like a checksum to make sure that there's not some sort of other problem. Another example would be like if you have uh, an order with order items, like, like a, you know, an Amazon cart, something like that, then the uh, line item totals, should add up to the order total. So those can be examples of uh, invariance. And invariants can also be things like constants, um, which are defined co- at uh, compile time. But they can also be these kind of um, wishy-washy things. And they can represent variables and represent concepts. And you can use them to kind of um, check things. But I just thought that was kind of an interesting distinction between con- constants and invariants. Yep.
1: And you found something else that that I thought was a good... Uh, summation of it with
0: the assertion, right? Oh, did I? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I don't remember what it was. Now it was just saying that that. Uh, how did I find? Well, it's it? It's kind of
2: like the checksum thing, right? Where yeah. you know you add up the the items in the or, in the order items that it should equal it to the order total, right? So you can use it kind of like a checksum, or you can basically assert that these things are equal. Yes, and they should be. And if there's not that, there's a problem, and you should probably bail out because you're in an inconsistent state.
1: It kind of went to the whole notion of like unit testing. You're asserting that something is true and and they should always sort of stay in that state, at least in terms of what you expect them to be in. So uh, Eric Evans in his book on domain driven design, he actually had a really nice summation of how they use it in the domain driven design paradigm. So in chapter six, page one twenty eight, in the first paragraph, invariants are consistency rules that must be maintained whenever data changes. So going back to your order total thing, right? Your order line items must add up to the order total. If not, it's not in a consistent state. And then that's a problem. That's an error. So I thought that summed it up pretty well. And you have something else here.
0: Oh yeah. Just to like wrap up our news section here. So did you see the new Samsung? CHG90. Nope. So, if you thought that your widescreen monitor was nice, they just uh, proved you wrong with the 49 inch curved super ultra wide gaming monitor. Yes, sir. I think you could see, like, if they show a picture of it. Uh, there's one picture that I see from Business Insider where they have Excel opened up because if you're really going to show off the the amazingness of a monitor excel is your go-to program (laughs) (laughs) and i think you could see every column that excel will allow you to have i've seen some sheets (laughs) Uh, that's true what was that you've seen some
2: i've seen some
1: sheets hey do you know how much is going for i do not it's on amazon is it already well it's not being sold it says it's going to be released on june 30th It's fourteen ninety nine, so it's not insanely ridiculous.
0: Well, here's here the thing that, that also is, kind of a of like, <laughs> I found humorous about this is that, like, you know, we've talked about having an ultra-wide monitor already, right? And those are typically a 21, point, 21 to 9 aspect ratio. This thing is 32 to 9. That's ridiculous, man. That but it was also kind of humorous wide. too because it was like, oh, it's a ultra wide. William, you know, we have ultra wides and now this is super ultra wide and it's like, <laughs> hey, when are we going to just adopt some other way of describing this stuff where it's like I felt like this was going the same path as like standard definition, high definition, ultra high definition, super ultra high definition.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you said something just a second ago, Joe. You kind of broke out. What would you say?
2: Double wide. <laughs> <laughs> good. Hey, you like, know, Yeah, my, my widescreen is 16 by 9, so.
1: Man, yeah. I mean, once you go to the ultra wide, it's hard to get away from it. It's really cool, though, because even looking at some of the specs on this thing, this is using the same, like, super high-end technology that they use on their nicer TVs. So, like, this isn't just a, a gaming monitor. Like, this thing's it's loaded to the hilt with features.
0: Yeah, The the Verge calls it half a TV. Oh, that's amazing, man.
1: All right. Nice. Okay. So, I love it. All right. So what's what are we on next? Is it the actual show? Sure. Here we go. Yes. So let's move into what we're talking about today with domain-driven design. And we got three things, and we're doing this a little bit differently. We each researched one of these topics so that two of us will be ignorant, and one of us will know what we're talking about at any given time.
0: Is so, that a guarantee?
1: Not a guarantee. Oh. Probably all three of us won't know what we're talking about at any given time, but we'll try our best.
2: So, And there is a theme between these three topics. Um, we're basically focusing on the life cycle of uh, complex objects and relationships in domain-driven design.
1: Yep. So the, where we're going to start is with aggregates and aggregate roots, because really when you start talking about domain-driven design this is where the important stuff really starts coming together when you're defining your models and and how these things work. So a few definitions, the aggregate root is the entry point of an aggregate where the work should be done. And this ensures the integrity of the object graph. An aggregate is a cluster of associated objects that we treat as a unit for the purpose of data changes. This is basically the graph of the objects there. And we'll help clear that up here in just
2: a minute. So, Can we say the last sentence one, one, second, one more time? Say which one, the last one? Yeah, a cluster of associated objects that we treat as a unit for the purpose of data changes. Yep. Yep. So would that be like something like an order that kind of wraps or is made up of order items?
1: Very similar to that. So really... It, the problem is your aggregate root, and I don't want to get in too much of an example just yet without describing some things, but yeah, your order might be your aggregate root itself, and an order item in there might be another aggregate because this going to contain things like prices and, and quantities and, and some other things, right? So it's definitely interesting. So let's uh, let's dive in here a little bit. So objects within an aggregate boundary can reference each other but not outside the boundary, unless it's to another aggregate route. So in the book, he talks about a car and, and this kind of sums it up. It it should be pretty easy for people to visualize. So you have a car and on your car, you have, you have tires and you have wheels and, and you might even have an engine, right? Might, you hope you do. So (laughs) There there are different aggregates that can exist there. An engine could be an aggregate itself because there's parts and stuff that belong on an engine. The car itself is also an aggregate because it contains a lot of things that can be operated on there. But then you have to decide what is my route what can operate on these things tires themselves don't really matter outside of knowing that it's a car like if if you say that there's a tire it has no relevance outside of the fact that it's on your car or my car so that's not an aggregate that is something that belongs in the boundary of the car so when you look at the entire boundary of the car It's your aggregate route. You're going to have tires inside that boundary. You're going to have wheels inside that boundary. And you might even have the position of the car inside that boundary. Those tires and wheels cannot reference anything outside the boundary of car itself right? Car knows about them and can reach down there and, and do anything it needs to with those, like the wear on the tires or, or anything like that. It can know about all that. But the tires cannot do anything outside of that car, right? They so only- like
2: you would say the tire didn't run over a nail, the car ran over a nail, and the car is responsible for, for routing that where it needs to go.
1: Correct. And if that tire popped because of that nail, then the car is responsible for knowing about how to push that down right it because it's what has to make sure everything stays in a consistent state so that's one of the most important things about the aggregate root itself is it is when we talked about the invariance a minute ago it is what enforces those invariants
0: i feel like that's a weird way though to explain that though because as you were describing some of that i'm thinking like well In an event world, right, as the tire ran over the nail, the car doesn't know that it ran over the nail. The tire knows. So the tire would, like, bubble up the event. Hey, this just happened.
1: So you could totally do that, and the aggregate could be the thing that's aware of it. But basically, that event could not – so if you wanted to go that route, that event could not route outside the car, right? It has to stop at the car. Nothing else can reach in and know about the tire on that car. It has to go through the car to get there is basically what it boils down to because what they don't want, the whole purpose of the aggregate route is to maintain the state of whatever's inside it. Right. And as soon as you start letting other things outside of that aggregate route reach in and see stuff inside it, you can no longer maintain that state properly. You want as little touching that stuff as possible.
0: Everything should go through that car. So I had a different takeaway from what you were describing then is like the, you know, how to consider like if this is a candidate for being an aggregate route or not in your car versus tire example. And it really kind of made me think it, it, it more closely kind of goes back to the order and line item example. But as I, when I heard it, it made me think of like cascading deletes, but it was like, if you, when you, delete the root. Does it need to delete the associated things with it? Yes. Right. And that's what. That's part of it too. That's actually one of the rules.
1: So if you delete something, it has to occur at the aggregate. It's what has to trigger it. And then it is responsible for making sure that everything that should have chained down that cascade delete has to happen at one time. So it is responsible for that.
2: Like uh, one example I was kind of thinking of is like if you are, you've got a shopping cart system, order, order items like we're talking about, right? And now um, you've got the requirement to build a, a coupon system with a 10% off coupon. One way to build that would be to build like a separate coupon system and take in the order items and just go ahead and lop off 10% off each one and kind of set the the, t- the total. And what we're saying here is that would be a bad way of doing things because it should interact with those items via the uh, the actual order and it should maybe tell the order that the price needs to change.
1: Yep, totally. And and if you think about that, if you take it a little bit further, like when you think about breaking the coupon out into its own thing, that's kind of how we would do things in the old way. You'd think about, oh, there's this coupon object that operates on on items, right? And, and the problem is that it could get more complex as time goes on. And now you end up with some spaghetti code. If you place that thing within the boundaries of what that aggregate root is, the order, you know exactly how that thing needs to operate within that order on those order items. So you are localizing any kind of state changes and you can be fully aware and control and verify those state changes. Okay, I like that. So here's another thing going to this whole aggregate root thing, and this one is kind of key. When you think about aggregate roots, They are what have external IDs. So if you're thinking about something that's stored in a database or anything like that, the car has a VIN. It is globally identifiable. The things inside it, probably not. So for instance, a tire, that's not, it's just a tire, right? You bought four of them. They're all probably the same, unless you got a car with a different rear end and and front, but it's just tires. You have four of them on there. Now, Let's just talk about from the perspective of if you are a car salesman, right? If you're at a car dealership, the car is important to you. The tires are not. If you're a Toyo or you're somebody else like that, you might have a different domain, right? Because there probably is an identifying number on that tire. But for the purposes of the domain that we're talking about, that tire has no ID that you're going to get to. Right now, it'll have properties. It'll have an ID within its boundary that says this is the front left tire. This is the front right tire, whatever. But it's not going to be something that you can access from outside it with some sort of identifier. You're going to have to go through the car and say, give me your front right tire. Right. Something like that. Um, So that's one thing. Uh, he did point out that engines could have been a separate uh, aggregate as well because they also have unique identifiers. Like there's typically some sort of serial number on an engine, that kind of thing. So that could have happened, but
2: for the purpose of this, we'll, we'll leave that one alone. But wait, it's, I think, it's important to say that, that aggregates can contain other aggregates, right?
1: No. No, no, no. no I'm sorry. Uh, an aggregate root can contain other aggregates. Yes. okay
2: the root can
1: the root can so the root is really the only thing you can ever interface with and 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 act on but with some exceptions so you're saying like an aggregate root can't contain another aggregate root right right an aggregate root is your top level thing because that's what's maintaining the consistency for everything within its bounds. And so it would be kind of weird to have one surrounding another boundary and it would get kind of nasty, right? And now you're back into that whole complexity thing that the whole reason for domain-driven design is simplifying your use cases really is what it boils down to. Do
2: you ever feel like domain-driven design is really just kind of how-to object-oriented program? You know what? If for complex needs, I think so. I think
1: that's why I'm really enjoying this is because – it's a different way of thinking about the problems that we've been solving for years. Because a lot of times you'll say, these are my database objects. These are my classes. Right. And and then all of a sudden you get into these situations where like, Oh man, this is getting really hard to manage. When you break it down like this, you write more code, but it's way easier to reason about. So I think so. I think it's almost like a, a good, a good path to follow for trying to simplify managing complex business needs.
2: I mean, it kind of means, too, it's like if you have a hard time talking about your code, then maybe you've got some design issues there. It seems like it's really um, tightly coupled, not t- that's about <laughs> it, it's um, highly related to. The, uh, the, the language that we've talked about, that ubiquitous language between uh, the, the domain, so talking about the problem that you're trying to solve, and your code, and trying to keep those as closely aligned as possible. Yep. These are some really good guidelines for helping you do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think as we've gone further along, it, it starts to come together. I mean, this is a big topic, right? Like, there's, there's nothing small about this, but it, it really does all start to click, and you start looking at it and you go, man, that makes sense. Why, why have I never thought about it that way before? Some of the terminology, like the aggregate roots and all that, you're like, ah, eh,
0: that's but, the part that gets me. Is yeah, the terminology yeah. is is so like you don't you don't talk about aggregate roots in your daily life as a developer, right? Right. No one's going to ask you, hey, um, I need to talk to you about these requirements, but what ubiquitous language are you going to use, right? So that we like, so yeah, definitely the terminology. Getting on board with it is, I think, one of the hurdles. Yes. To to this
1: book. I totally agree. That's one of the parts that when you're reading, you're like, man, it's almost like when you read a novel and they introduce 50 characters at the beginning, you're like, man, oh, it's going <laughs> to take me forever to keep up with this stuff, right? And that's sort of what this feels like. But as you get into it, it really starts clicking. So to hit on the entities inside the boundary, again, they say they only have local identities, even if they might have something that exists in the database in terms of your domain they they only exist inside that thing
0: nobody else is going to reach in and grab them go ahead well i was just thinking going back to our order example like you you as the customer might know your order number but you don't know or care the id the primary key of that line item on that order correct that's that's not exposed to you in any way right the, and it, before anyone starts talking about the sku that would be part of the description of the line item not the primary key exactly So now here's where things are a
1: little bit weird. So you can transitively access some of the inner properties. So I mentioned like the, the car tire, right? If something else needed to find out what the wear on that thing was, you could ask the car what's the status of your front right tire, right? And so it could, it could transitively give you access to that for a moment, but you're not supposed to hang on to that reference. Like it's literally just, Hey, go get some information about it. And then you're done. So that's how it's
0: supposed to work. Any questions? I guess that kind of makes sense. Well, no, I mean, I'm thinking that that's really how it works too. When you take your car into the shop, right? They you know, they just plug into the ECU. It gives it some information like this is the status of whatever that check engine light is, or depending on, you know, some cars you can just take the key in right? and the key will, you know, have, have the information about like, Oh, you're due for an oil change. Yep. So that's interesting. And and it makes sense, right? Like this is all about encapsulation,
1: right? Like this is another form of encapsulation is what we're talking about because as developers, we know about variable encapsulation and the privates and the publics and all that kind of stuff. This is business logic encapsulation. Is basically what this boils down to.
2: Yeah, I was thinking about um, we talked before about um, the rule and in independent about uh, mutually dependent namespaces, and why that is even a thing. And and really, what it's telling you is that you've got some you know some concepts that are overlapping. And it kind of sounds like it's that's one way of kind of detecting or talking about um, overlapping aggregate roots. Yeah, totally. And it'd be
1: awesome if we if we actually were to put together an application. I bet Independ would show up beautifully, right? Like, you'd have all these nice, clean separations on everything. Um, this is another interesting byproduct, which I believe you're going to get into here in a little bit, is only the aggregate routes can be obtained directly with database queries. So Ooh. I'm not 100% sure how this flows through yet, because I haven't read you guys' stuff part on this yet, but... My guess is because it is what's responsible for maintaining the state, this is where it all flows through as well for filling it, updating, all that kind of stuff. So all the operations should happen at the aggregate route.
2: Um, I'm just imagining a scary N plus one problems there where you're like, um, how, you know, say you're UPS and you're like, how my tires doing? Like, okay, well, first let's go get all the trucks. And then let's go through each truck and get all the tires, you know, and it just seems like that's kind of an inefficient way to query, but I could, I could see how in a domain that makes sense. It's just from a a performance standpoint, like anything like that always scares me. But you know what though, to that point, probably
1: what you'd have though is if you are talking about your trucks, then let's say that you had some sort of domain for your trucks. Let's say that the tires were an issue like some sort of problem that needed to be solved you might come up with your own domain for the tire maintenance right like if if all of a sudden that did become your bottleneck then maybe it became important enough to where you would create another domain for that so i guess that's what i'm saying is like it's just like any software it would evolve over time and you'd have to address those needs so you know, maybe you create something that goes directly to the tires instead of having to spin up all these objects for that use case.
2: Yeah. It's reporting services. Adios.
1: <laughs> right, there we go. Um, so here's another thing. Objects within an aggregate may contain references to aggregate roots outside of it. So that tire inside this thing could reference, you know, the manufacturing plant, if that was some sort of aggregate root out there, they can reference another aggregate root, so the top level things. Uh, you said this earlier. When you delete something, it is responsible for making sure
0: that the delete happens, and it happens all at once. I'm still trying to keep my still trying to keep wrapped around the idea of the difference between the aggregate and the aggregate root. So I was thinking, like, well, I know that you said that maybe engine is a special case, but let's pretend that it didn't have any kind of ID on it, and so an engine could be an aggregate. Yes. But the car is the aggregate root. Yes. For it. Yes. Right. So that, so and meaning that because you said that the uh you referred to the aggregate as a cluster of associated objects and that's why I was, I, I call it the engine because you know you we can all think of that as having a bunch of parts unlike a tire right but you know so there's a lot of a lot of parts associated to the engine. Yep. And that's just one of the pieces of the entire car. Yep. And the engine would have things like needs oil change, right? Or or whatever the
1: case may be. So yes, it can totally be inside the aggregate route. And, and one of the things that I did find interesting and a little bit confusing when I was first going through this is they somewhat use the term entity versus aggregate in some situations. And I think an entity is just a thing, right? It could be an object. I don't think it's a property. I think something like a property is not known as an entity. So an entity would have its own set of properties. So an engine might be an entity, which would be its own aggregate possibly. <clears throat> I may have misread that or didn't understand it completely, but they, it seemed like they interchange those terms a lot. Hmm. So this is one thing that is super important. When the data inside the aggregate boundary changes, so anything within that car changes the invariance on the aggregate must be satisfied, and it is the job of the aggregate root to do so. Um, so this was this was one of the things that was really kind of interesting. Is define all your aggregates at once, right? Figure out exactly what your aggregates are, what things kind of you know compile functionality or properties, <clears throat> and then once you've done all that, figure out which one is the root that should sort of encircle them and, and put a boundary around the other ones. And that's kind of what you do in, in a lot of situations. So if you have the orders, you have order items, you might have, I don't know, fulfillment or something like that. You'd look at all those and say, okay, well the order is the largest, you know, that that makes the most sense to be up here at the root. And that's, that's sort of how you end up doing it. And then I do want to point out, so we were talking about orders. One of the things that I thought was interesting is he went into something that was real life and, and and really presents several problems, and it's the purchase order problem. So on a purchase order, you have the amount that you're allowed, the limit for your purchase order. So it could be $1,000. On that purchase order, you're going to have somebody adding to the purchase order or modifying the purchase order. And on the purchase order itself, there's going to be items that have some sort of cost associated with them, Right. And so one of the things that he pointed out was this is a fairly complex business situation. So let's say that me and Outlaw are working on the same purchase order at the same time. And that thing has a maximum limit of $1,000. Well, if I add five items that are 100 bucks each and you add four items that are $500 or, or that are $200 each, and we both do it and there's no sort of locking on that particular purchase order, we could get into a state where we've gone over the thousand dollar price mark. Right. And so now that's an issue. Well, how do you solve that? Do you lock the purchase order? So if I'm touching it, you can't touch it. Do you lock the items so that they can't be added to a purchase order until somebody else is finished with them? Like it, it really opens up a whole world of problems. And then what if somebody changes the price on a product while you're working on a purchase order?
0: Right. But I don't understand how this goes back to the aggregates and the aggregate roots problem. I mean, this seems like purchase orders sounds like a special type of domain that you're already in right so I, I I'm losing the analogy a little so bit. So
1: he took it from the perspective of if you just had an application that had no domain, right? You just did it like everybody always does it. You you pull a PO out of the database and you start
0: working on it. Somebody okay, else pulls you started with the database first and you created some yes. object to represent that row in the database.
1: Exactly. So now you have two people working on this thing. Somebody saves it, updates it, and now there's $500 in there. Somebody else saves it right after or right around the same time and now it's gone up over $1000. Unless you overwrote the previous question or or they overwrote the previous, but you know, chances are they just updated some line item, right? They, they up the number in there. So it was this whole concurrency and this whole locking state type thing. And, and so this is where the domain comes in is, Hey, let's talk about it from the business perspective. So he came up with, with a few rules. One parts are used in many POs. There's high contention for parts right? There's a lot of people that are accessing parts. There are fewer changes to parts than there are to POs. So you're not going to be changing the price of the part all that much, but you could be modifying POs a lot. Changes to part prices do not necessarily update the PO because it only matters at a certain state in the PO, right? Like if you're in draft mode, it probably doesn't matter, whatever, right? Until this thing starts to go live. So these were the three business rules that came up. And so now what you can do, if you're doing this in a domain driven world, you can say, okay, these are the business rules I know about. Okay. So now the PO is going to be my aggregate route because it has a limit that I need. It's my invariant, right? whatever that limit is you can't go over it and within there now i'm going to have P, i'm going to have line items within that po that people are working on and so those things have to be in a consistent state so if somebody accesses this one po and they want to make changes that has to be done atomically before somebody else can access it and do that do any modifications to it so the po becomes your aggregate root it is what is responsible for the invariant state of the object itself, and so now you're in, you're in a pretty good situation, right? You've now locked down the control that way, so it's not just people willy nilly accessing things and updating things. It's all got to flow through that particular piece of domain logic.
0: Yeah, I was kind of thinking that it would be um, up to the the domain object's responsibility to know that, like, you know, part of his. Part of its business rule is to know whether or not something needs to be uh, locked, you know, to disable concurrency, right? Yep. So I was going, I was kind of thinking back, like as you were describing, going back to the car example, right? Like you can't have two people fill up the tank at the same time, so there's got to be a lock done to let one person fill up the tank and then the next person can come back behind it and say like, oh, it's already been done or it still needs to be done.
1: And the cool part is because you know about the need for that, you can handle it at the aggregate root level. Whereas if you just had a bunch of objects in your system, right now you're going to have to say, oh, do we lock the parts? Do we lock this? And now you're going to end up with deadlocks because you have all these things trying to lock things. And if you haven't ever had to deal with locks, you know, fortunate for you, but if you do, you can easily get into a state where you lock this, something else is dependent on that. And then you end up locking that. And so now you get into the state where, where things can never, you know, recover. So doing it this way and going down, making the PO your aggregate route, it handles all that for you. It knows that, Hey, somebody's working on this one. I need to make sure that these things are consistent. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty much what I've got for the aggregate roots, and I mean, hopefully that made a little bit of sense.
2: Yeah, it sounds really good, and it really dovetails into the stuff that I was reading too, which is uh, coming up here in a sec. Do you hate being distracted by production support issues when you should be working on new features?
0: Well, if you do, you should take a look at airbreak.io. It's a service for alerting and monitoring, so you can spend less time debugging and more time writing great code. That's
2: right, and airbrakesupports.net, uh, JavaScript, Node.js, um, Java, Go, just about any programming language or platform you can think of, uh, and you can see all of them on their GitHub page. And there's also a free trial, which, uh, thanks to your feedback, no longer requires credit card number. So you can check it out risk-free at http colon slash 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 cb. Again, that was getairbrake.com slash cb. All right, now we're back talking about factories. So when you're creating these complex objects or aggregates, um, things can get really sticky because a lot of time there's these complicated rules, uh, there's these invariants that we're talking about, and so um, it's we have to maintain these invariants not only when we're changing data, but also when we're creating it the first time, which if you're familiar with the uh, design patterns that we've covered before, um, then it's a good use of factory. And I found a quote here that I actually thought was really funny because this is something that we kind of joke about a lot, but uh, the whole quote's a little long, but I'll go ahead and blast through it. Much of the power of objects rests in the intricate configuration of the internals and their associations. An object should be distilled until nothing remains that does not relate to its meaning or support its role in interactions. This midlife cycle responsibility is plenty. This kind of ties back to something that we talk a lot about, especially our buddy John, where... um objects when you you tend to do them the right way they end up not really doing a lot and so you end up with a lot of interfaces a lot of dumb objects and a whole lot of code that doesn't really do anything and you end up kind of zipping through them in the debugger and trying to figure out where the actual behavior lies and a lot of times it's kind of spread out so i thought it was kind of funny that like something that we complain about is uh in a way kind of the goal here
0: meaning that we're complaining about it being solid
2: Right. And so, and that's kind of a, something that we talk about sometimes is like, you know, solid is great and it's maintainable and it's easy to understand, but it also makes for a a lot of disparate and just a lot of code in general, you know, you get kind of a class explosion when you do things this way. And so I just thought it was kind of an interesting point to bring up.
1: But you know what, in that same statement, what I was trying to wrap my head around and I think, yeah, that it should be boiled down to, you know, or distilled down. How did it say it?
0: yeah it, the it, intricate configuration of their internals.
1: So basically, oh, yeah, it does not relate to its meaning or support its role in its interactions. This is one of the key parts of domain driven design that I really like. So going back to the old way that we do things where you have a database and then you you have a table and then you represent those in classes, right? Like typically, you have all the properties from that table on that same class, right? Because you need it to come in and out. When you're doing domain driven design, don't care about any of that you care about what you're trying to accomplish and so if there's a hundred properties in that table you might only have five in your domain object because you only care about doing certain operations and I love that right here because that's the thing that when I read that I was like oh that's that's really cool because that's really what we're trying to get down to is what is the business behavior
2: or functionality
1: we're trying to do everything else we don't need
2: but I'm sure there's been times when you've looked at some code and you're like, oh, every class I look at, all it does is call another class. All it does is delegate. All it does is delegate. All it does it delegate. Here, I finally found a class that does something and it, you know, updates a bit field, which can be frustrating as a programmer, but also, you know, the we're talking about the reasons how we how we end up there and why we do that. And uh, I thought there was a, a strong correlation there with the, the solid principles that we, we talked about for more of a micro level. Yep. And so um, the idea here is to abstract away those complexities and um, abstract even the creation of these uh, aggregate roots or complex objects uh, into one spot. And uh, another quote they had in the book is that you don't create the car and drive the car at the same time. Although I've worked at some places that absolutely do that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I I just like the idea of... um, of, of breaking the stuff I'm thinking about it just like uh, uh, these higher level concepts the same way you think about code and so um, the idea is to have the factories know about these rules of these complex objects and also know about these invariants so that they can enforce these invariants right and so in this case we are building classes that or methods that um, manage these um, these intricacies. Even though they're outside of the aggregate root, which is something it's kind of a in a contrast to what we just talked about which is having the aggregate uh, root do everything. And they kind of go into that a little bit. And um, that's definitely a, a, the point that they're very aware of in the book here and they kind of talk about how we can manage to keep those lines clean. So
1: let me make sure I'm fully understanding what you're saying. So instead of having the aggregate root be the controller of its own domain, you're saying now that the factory, some of that responsibility is leaking out to the factory,
2: right? And and that's the thing. So um, there's a couple ways to handle that, and a couple ways to deal with the the problems there. And one method is to not actually um, mess with those internals, but just to delegate to that aggregate root, and that seemed like the cleanest to me. Uh, another way to do that is to have the factory know a minimum amount of the rules and invariants, which is is pretty gross. But it I seemed to me like the um, the example they gave there about delegating was the, the best way to go. So it was everything still being managed through the aggregate route. Uh, but, you know, it's it's tricky.
0: So that's like, that's losing me though. Because if I'm going with our car analogy though, now the car, like I think, okay, cars on an assembly line in a factory, there's the factory that's creating the car. <laughs> but now this. you're saying that the factory is telling the car how to make itself?
2: Yeah, it's Am like, I, hey, car, Throw on these wheels. Hey, car, here's a windshield.
1: So, I, I am a little curious though, because typically when we talk about factories, we're talking about creators, right? So, hammer factory factories. That, that, too. I guess my question is how is it? Does the factory need to know this business logic in order to create the car? Or is it doing something with the car after it's already been created?
2: It's fully in charge of creating the car in the first place. Like, it's the car factory, you know. It's throwing on those wheels, those that windshield. It's stamping the VIN number on there. It's doing all that stuff.
1: Okay, so it's literally we're talking about we're talking about business logic that the factory knows about in order just to create it. Once it creates it, though, the aggregate sort of on its own doing whatever it needs to do to maintain its invariance, or no.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So this okay. is actually um, kind of a, a step in, a, in a, a, a side direction here because um, the factories are totally, um, they're not a member of the domain, right? They're not something that the customer understands. They're not something that knows well. It's, and it kind of runs counter to all the stuff that we talk about, about trying to align everything up with this ubiquitous language. Now we introduce these factories in, and they're, they're basically helpers that help us manage stuff. And in order to do that, we've got to kind of cheat some of these rules. And so, we've got some guidelines here that kind of help us um, avoid the worst parts of that cheating and kind of stick to the best practices there. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, by having this stuff in factories or a factory, then we're bundling the knowledge in one place, which is good, right? So, we're not um, spreading out all the information to create a car uh, in multiple different places. And they give us two good criteria for creating good factories. And when I say factory here, um, we are talking about like a factory class as well as factory methods. Like um, if you've got like, say, a car class, you could say, um, you know, car.create and give it the information it needs and have it create. So it doesn't necessarily have to be its own class. The first rule is to always return an object in a consistent state. And that's where we talked about um, managing those invariants. And that's where some of that business logic comes in. It's like, sometimes you have to know what those invariants are if you're gonna make sure to create an object that's in a consistent state. And you don't want a factory that's gonna return something other than like a fully functional car, right?
1: That makes sense, okay.
2: And uh, the second one I thought was really interesting, they say they want you to abstract to the type desired, not the class. And that's an example where, you know, you, if you've got a car, um, you may have a factory for a Porsche, you may have a factory for a Ferrari, you may have a factory for whatever, but it should always just return a car. And the same thing with the factory method, which is where things get a little weird, you might have a factory class, or sorry, um, a Ferrari class, and you may have a factory method on that says like, Ferrari.create, and it should create a Ferrari, but it should return a car. Okay. And that's so you can use it abstractly.
0: Okay. Wow, so this is where my hammer factory, factory joke was uh, going extreme now because now you'd have a factory, a tool factory, and you're like, create a tool, but I want a hammer. And so that factory is like, well, secretly behind the scenes, I'm going to call whatever hammer factory is necessary to to return back a
2: tool. (laughs) Yeah, factory is all the way down.
1: Okay, so this makes sense then. Now now I understand why we're talking about the business thing because we're saying in order to create this car in a way that makes sense for the invariants, that factory might need to know about what those invariants are in order to return this thing into a proper state, right? Like like you couldn't have a factory just add three wheels to the car because then it's not going to be a car.
2: So, yeah, the factory needs to know that there's three wheels or 18 wheels or, you know, four wheels on the bottom and one on the back.
1: Okay. I get it. I don't know how you get past that, But that makes yeah, sense. Yeah,
2: it's definitely a, a conflict with the uh, aggregate roots, and that's why they spend so long kind of talking about this particular pattern, because they're like, this kind of conflicts with some of the ideas here, but it's still a really good pattern because it's better than the alternatives. And so they give us, a, in the next section here, a few guidelines for um, uh, arranging and organizing our factories to kind of minimize those downsides. So... um one method that they suggest is actually having the, fa- the factory method on the aggregate route. So that's what we kind of talked about, like car.create. And so that way, your logic for creating is, is close in proximity to the actual car itself.
1: So we're talking about a static method in our in our aggregate route, basically. Yeah. Okay.
2: Yep. And uh, another um, suggestion they give is a factory method on a similar spawner and i thought it's cool that they use the word spawner here um in in the car example um i think a, a good one might be you already have a ferrari a ferrari uh, factory and now uh, ferrari wants to come out with a new you know ferrari se that's got an upgraded engine and a cool new spoiler right it might make sense for you to just kind of tack that on to the ferrari factory And, uh, you know, either give it another method or maybe take some different arguments or something in order to, uh, be able to create slight variance, but you're not going to want to do something totally different here. It's just for, um, this is an option for when things are really similar.
0: Okay. You said something a moment ago though about the factory and the aggregates, but I was kind of thinking that the aggregate though is just a collection of the, of the instance though, right?
2: The aggregate is a collection, but the aggregate root is the one that kind of owns it.
1: So this factory is creating the aggregate roots. Well, and any aggregates within the aggregate root. Yeah, it's still a collection. That aggregate
0: root is still a collection of the instances, though. Uh, Yep.
1: Well.
2: It's the root node on the the, 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 kind of the hierarchy.
0: I mean, I
1: I, I guess the only thing that, that I think I that makes me say not necessarily a collection of instances, the aggregate route might be a one and only thing, right? Like the aggregate route might be the Ferrari is what I'm getting at. Like it might not be that this is a collection of cars. But it's
0: a collection of aggregates, which are all an instance of like a tire, a steering wheel, a seat, an engine. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Right.
2: Yeah. Yep. Um, Another – example they gave was just kind of having a separate factory class and then um we've got some tools like dependency injection or whatever for configuring different things like that but it's really just kind of having it um on the side there and they also give the example of just having a plain old constructor but um uh and even the factory class having a standalone factory class they kind of warn you a little bit about the, like uh they definitely have a preference for the factory method for keeping things everything there because by having stuff in a separate class, uh, you it's really hard not to duplicate those rules, and you know out of sight, out of mind. But if you're going to do a constructor, here's a couple things that uh, they told you to keep in mind, which I thought was really interesting. Um, like for instance, um, that's is maybe a good option if you really don't care about the object hierarchy which is kind of a tough thing to tell a programmer. But like, this is uninteresting, It so don't worry about it. But it's for really, like, um, you know, there's some situations when you know that you're really not going to be doing a lot of fancy stuff. So, you know, car is a terrible example. But um, I don't know. What's a small piece on the car that no one really cares about?
1: Well, hold on a second, though. Floor so we- Yeah, floor mat. So you're saying, yeah. though, the constructor... We're talking about the constructor on the Ferrari class itself, right? Yep. In the aggregate root class. And we're saying that... hierarchy. There's a few
2: cases where you might want to consider a constructor, but in most cases, you don't want to. But here are the guidelines. I know we've talked about
0: constructors just getting nasty because of all the parameters you might have to add before. So you would
1: have a static method that's like create, you know, Ferrari SE. Right, as opposed to
0: well, not even that. I mean, if we go back to clean code, though, we talked about like reducing the number of parameters that you'd pass in. So then you might have like some kind of a configuration object. Right. Yeah, you could do that. Pass in.
1: Okay.
2: All right. Go on, please. But basically, it's a really boring class that doesn't matter. Then constructor may be a valid option, and no one will ever care. Okay. Um. uh, Another example was maybe the client actually cares about the concrete class that you're using. And that's an example of maybe like a strategy, like maybe it cares how you're creating that class or, uh, or that car. Or maybe it, uh, you know, I, I like to think of a little chess game I made where I had different, you know, I had like the, the chess master AI, I had the random AI, I had the crappy AI. Um, and so maybe the, the client, and the client doesn't necessarily mean the website or client code, but just anyone calling that code may um, very specifically have a reason for creating this particular class. Like it uh. wants a Ferrari
1: I got you. Instead of having a car type coming back, it actually needs that specific concrete implementation of that class.
0: Right. One thought that I had though, is that you were saying that, you know, the preference Eric had the preference of, uh, he and I are on a first name basis. Um, (laughs) he had a preference to the factory methods over the factory class, but I was thinking that, well, if you wanted to support like an abstract base, then you'd have to have really a both situation. You'd have to have the factory class that you would call and say like, hey, uh, create this car and this is the specifications for what I'm looking for. And then that thing would decide, oh, well, he wants a Ferrari. So I'm going to create the Ferrari and return back a Ferrari. But the type that it's being passed back as is just the the abstract car, right? So there might be like a Ferrari.create method that's being called inside of the factory class. So a factory class calling a factory method. Yep.
2: Yeah, right? well that's that's legit.
0: I mean, because how else could you handle that abstract case then?
2: Yeah, like my initial thought is like, oh, you just have an interface, and then you have your car factories, like your Ferrari, whatever, implement that interface that has a create method that returns a car. But you can't do that because we, you know, the factory methods I generally think of as being static methods, which can't implement interfaces. So I guess you could have some sort of abstract car class that um, requires a, you know, like a what's a virtual um, factory method that returns a car. Um, that would be one way to kind of enforce that relationship, but it's not great. Hmm. Uh, one thing to consider here too are uh, are there any attributes that are hidden from a client? Like are there private variables that need to be set, or maybe internal or package uh, properties that need to be set? And that's not something you want to turn over to a client. It's just not a good candidate for using con- a constructor. And another one is construction simple. This is kind of something we talked about with the, those parameters growing. You don't want to be having um, con- clients in charge of creating complex objects, right? That's why we create factories in, in the first place. So, not a good candidate for constructors. And another one is uh, if there are invariance. In, in that we care about here. So if there are little rules that uh, a client needs to take care of things that, you know, where the, um, the conditions for these different properties matter, like maybe you can't, uh, you know, set numbers higher than this, if some other parameter set, or maybe you can't have, um, three tires on a Ferrari. Um, then that's probably not a good, uh, candidate for, for a constructor because you're going to want something that's going to know those rules and be able to enforce those rules. all makes sense. Yep. So uh, we do have two guidelines for actually designing your factory classes. Uh, the first is that each operation must be atomic which means there's one method one result. There's no new of a factory now we add some configs we do some stuff, we add some more configs we make a decision, we do some more stuff. It's a one and done arguments go in one end output out the other. and uh my initial thought there was like if i i've never really done a factory any other way but um if i had i probably would have called it a builder because that's the kind of thing i think of where i do some kind of like additive conditional stuff that's a little bit more complicated but to me a factory has always been kind of one and done
0: as a singleton
2: (laughs) yeah well (laughs) my boy singleton (sighs) Uh, Another one is uh, to keep in mind here is that the factory is always coupled to its arguments. So be careful with complexity and stick to um, predominantly lower level uh, classes and also um, stick to abstractions if possible. So deal with interfaces, deal with um, higher level objects. (laughs) So lower level classes, but higher level objects.
0: What do you mean the factory is coupled to its arguments though?
2: So um, anything that you, uh, any classes that the factory knows about, like if it takes in a wheel class, a tire class, a, um, I don't know, an engine, uh, I guess just be saying objects. If it takes in a, a wheel object, a tire object, an engine object, then it needs to know about all those intimately. And so you are um, increasing the things that it cares about. You can imagine, a, I don't know, maybe a, um, more a more better design would be to take uh, I modules or something to the sort that it can just kind of add. Um, but that doesn't really make Wait, a lot of sense for I, a factory that needs I, to know.
0: I guess where I'm getting confused, where I'm getting lost in this description then is, are we talking about, when you say the factory is coupled to its arguments, are you saying that the creation of the factory itself or the cre- the factory is coupled to the arguments for the things that it's going to create? And so that it, in order to create the car, it has to know about, the tires, the floor mats, of the engine. That's what it sounded like, that right?
1: Like the more arguments
0: it has, the more knowledge it needs to have of of what it needs to be doing. Which goes back to the clean code version where it's reduced the number of parameters that you're passing into these right. methods. Is that what yep. we
2: were saying? Yeah, absolutely. And when I say um, stick to higher level objects, I mean take a tire. Don't take the rubber and the hub and the rim and the nuts and the bolts and, uh, you know, and uh, the little cap that goes on to keep the air from going out. from The valve, the inner tube. <laughs> what do you um, call that? <laughs> <laughs> the little valve that goes on there. Um, no, it's just uh, you want to stick to kind of high, uh, higher level abstractions. So if you can take a set of wheels, that would be great. Um, so it just, uh, it's just kind of a warning there to let you know that it, these factories are pretty gross. And they tend to touch a lot of different things. And you want to try and minimize that if you can. And then moving on a little bit, we talked a little bit about invariance and what to do about that. You know, one solution is um, duplicating the logic. You could have your factory um, checking to see if you've got uh, four tires. And you might also have your car checking to see if you've got four tires, which is, you know, kind of gross. So with the tire thing, not not such a big deal. But you can imagine that getting a little crazy if you're talking about, like, orders and order items. You know, there can be some pretty specific rules going on. and you don't have to be duplicating that. It's so another object or another. Um,
0: Maybe I'm getting too caught up in our car example though, because I was thinking about like going back to how long ago was it that we talked about the builder pattern? Uh, that was definitely a long time ago. But, yep. you know, I'm thinking back to like you like you just said tires don't matter and then I was like well you know I can kind of see the case for let's say we keep talking about Ferrari but let's let's change it and say that we talked about Toyota for a moment right and you might say uh, if you had a Toyota class with a static uh, factory method on it or let's say if it was a builder you know and maybe you'd have like a create.tundra or or I'm sorry t- toyota.create tundra or toyota.create supra right and in which case those different factory methods would have to know the specifics of this is the things that make this car unique, right? So this is the specific type of tire. One's going to be, you know, a low profile, more sporty tire versus one that's going to be a larger, uh, more beefy off-road tire, right? Mm Mm-hmm.
2: So, and um, there are a lot of dependencies between the two, too. So if you, like, say, you get the extended cab, maybe you have to get a certain type of uh, seat or maybe you have some other options that open up because of that. And so the car thing is definitely a rough example because uh, it really lends itself more to like a, a kind of a builder. And even just thinking about how cars are made, there's typically like an assembly line where you kind of add, 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 add and so it's not uh, as simple as a one and done like the factory is and the factory is very concentrated in this kind of atomic operation where you give me the config and then you you know i do it mm. in this case in the case of a car you would probably want to have some sort of whole other process that allows you to kind of plug and play those parts and and validate them and then you would pass off that completed and verified uh, configuration to the factory who would be in charge of putting everything together and putting it out uh, the Tundra in a consistent state.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely getting lost on the car example.
1: <laughs> I mean, if you went to the order example though, it, I mean, it, it's, it's a similar type thing, right? Cause you're gonna, you're going to set up your order. So if we're talking about the aggregate routes, right? So we're talking about a factory uh, method to create your order. So there's going to be some sort of identifier an order number, that it's going to use to create that thing. And with that, you're going to have, you know, totals, shipping amounts, taxes, that kind of stuff. Right. And then it's going to need to know how to build up probably the order items underneath it. So that factory pattern or that factory method is going to need to be able to push all that stuff together. So, so I think the whole thing is, do you do this at the order level? Because it's going to need to make sure everything's consistent. Those invariants are met at that point, right? When it happens whereas if you do it in the external factory, you're going to have to know about all that stuff. You're going to have to know that okay, the line item total needs to match what the order total is and 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 all this kind of stuff. So I, that's basically what we're getting at though, right? Is if you move it into the object itself, it has more of its its domain knowledge that it can it can take care of for you because it's already built into that aggregate root versus if you if you keep it in your factory method that's abstracted away, you're going to have to duplicate all that logic, right?
2: Yeah. And duplicating is bad um, because that's how mistakes are made. Right. Um, And and you'll
1: also get right. You'll get inconsistent conditions too, because if somebody came in and updated the order class and said, Oh, you can have this rule, but then they didn't realize that they needed to update that factory class. Now again, so it goes back to what you say. It creates bugs because Now you've got two different places that are trying to dictate the same thing, but they're doing it probably differently in the first place.
2: Yep. And so the the three kind of options that they presented in the book were basically one, you could just duplicate the logic. Uh, Don't do that. The second was moving the logic completely into the factory, which is just a little bit scary, but it's kind of like saying instead of the car knowing that it has to have four tires, you just say all cars forever must come from this one factory. And this one factory knows how to make them and no one else you know, knows the rules for what it takes to put them together. Which is also a little scary if you think about you know, taking that car and getting maintained or, you know, maintenance. maintenance or yeah. um, having some changes made to it by an external object and like, suddenly, it, like what, it doesn't know the rules? Right, that's what I was going to say. Now
1: at that point, you've moved all the valuable uh, invariant logic out of that that car and so it doesn't even know what's right anymore so literally the only thing that could ever maintain its state was that factory which is one and done right when it creates its hands off
2: after that yep and uh so the third option they gave was basically to have it delegate um to the product and popular being basically the uh the aggregate route so you would have the car add the wheel and you know you could ask the car like do you have enough wheels or maybe you know how many do you need so your factory would
1: basically be like um, car. Dot add wheel, or, or it's gonna, it's basically gonna try and spin it up by calling all the the methods on the aggregate route itself.
2: All right. but it still needs to have some knowledge, like it needs to know that you know the car even needs wheels in the first place. And so there's there's definitely um, some some blurred lines here, which is pretty gross. But if you kind of stick to these guidelines and um, kind of ask yourself the questions that we presented here about different attributes and, and the different uh, ways of creating factory factor methods. And hopefully you're going to be creating factories in the, the most sensible way to fit in with DDD. Okay.
0: Yeah, it sounds like, I definitely like the idea of the factory method uh, inside of that class, because then you're keeping, like you mentioned before, Joe, you're keeping the logic close together. You're keeping the internals close together, right? Uh, but like I pointed out, it sounds like there is a place for the class, but that's where you should to avoid the, the factory class from knowing too much, just use some interface or abstract base class or whatever to be able to pass in like uh, as a container of the the specification details for those various objects, but let the, the actual factory method deal with the internals of that thing, right? And that way, you know, it's kind of like marrying everything that we learned about clean code with DDD, mm-hmm. right? Yep, and we'll get clean DDD. Yes, cleaned, clean, <laughs> cleaned. I love yeah, it.
2: They definitely have a, a preference for the factory method. And after reading this, I do too. But you do have to keep in mind that you, we are absolutely in violation of the uh, the separation of concerns. Like we have a class that knows how to create itself, and then how to actually be itself, which are two different things. So, you know, uh, there's trade-offs. Uh, so there's no. OLED. There's no perfect.
1: <laughs> OLED. <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, Do you have another question for you, though? What about um, reconstituting stored objects? So, like, deserializing something from JSON. What do you do if the JSON is invalid? Those line items don't add up to the total. You throw an error, right? Uh, So that's um, what would normally happen, right? If you were trying to kind of have the factory put the stuff together um, and uh, you would just throw an error if you don't have enough wheels or whatever. But they also mentioned in the book one other option is um, uh, actually just to fix it. Which is not appropriate in a lot of cases, but for something like an order total, it might be. But you know, uh, I'm sure there's someone working in counting right now that has a fit about changing any sort of total in code without having it run through the formalized processes because it may not add up on a ledger somewhere.
0: No, that's a good point. But it also sounds like that gets border like uh, dangerously close into the repository. Uh, yep, like right area.
2: Yeah, and then we're definitely leading into that.
0: Yeah. Well, and, you, uh,
2: it does give two guidelines. Go ahead.
0: No, go ahead. I'm sorry.
2: I was going to say um, the only thing about uh, the the uh, the only other thing about reconstituting store objects it also advises you not to assign a new tracking ID to use the one that's been serialized with, and if it hasn't been serialized with one, then it, it should have been, and uh, you're really at this point implementing the prototype pattern where you're creating a copy of something. So ideally your serialized object is going to have any sort of identification that it needs already.
0: Assuming that you can read the ID.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm going to hold my question that I have, cause I think it's about to be answered in the repository thing in a minute. Oh,
0: okay. all right. I think so. Well, on that bombshell, let me just say that, uh, if you have already left us a review and you're one of the many names that we have called out, uh, in all of these episodes, we super appreciate it. It puts a smile on our face and you know, we can't say enough how, how happy we are to uh, read those. And if you haven't already left us a review, we would forever be grateful if you would head to www.codingblocks.net slash review. And there you can find links to iTunes or Stitcher where you could leave us a review and just know that you'd be putting a smile on our face. Oh
1: before we get into your favorite part of the show. Your favorite part of the show. My. Hey, uh so the review, yes. Also, we give away tons of cool stuff. Uh, you know, monetary, tons of free stuff, as well as just cool tips. Well, now you're making it sound like we gave away money.
0: So let me clarify that. (laughs)
1: Let me correct him. Things that have value, we give away on our on our mailing list. So if you're interested in you know winning some cool stuff and having some fun interactions, definitely go up to our site. And if you're on mobile, it's probably down towards the bottom of the page. But if you're on a computer, it's off to the right sidebar. Just go over there and sign up for our newsletter. You know we uh, we are pretty good about just giving away tons of free stuff in a fun way most of the time.
2: We may ask you to vote for us for things sometimes though. I think we're at like yes. about five percent total. <laughs> we did ask for a vote, um, but everything else has been a giveaway. But it's not one hundred percent. Just wanted to put that out there. Yep.
0: We we probably need to change it the name of it. But I was going to say we just change the name of it to a giveaway letter. But then Joe, Kuss, I guess he kind of took the wind out of those sails and said that we couldn't call it a a newsletter or that we we yeah. <laughs> we don't always do a giveaway, so I guess we have to call it a newsletter. There was one
2: when we didn't have a, a giveaway directly tied to it.
0: Yeah,
1: but mostly mostly it's cool stuff. So at any rate, yeah, I wanted to just throw that out there, definitely join that,
0: and uh, all righty. Now jo- it's on to your... You're right, join the giveaway letter. All right, so uh, <laughs> time for my favorite portion of the show. Survey says, you know, we actually got feedback that... Uh, on me specifically saying it like that. Someone really liked that. Yeah. So I got a kick out of that. So in our last episode, we asked, what's your headphone style of choice while coding? And your choices are on ear, great sound in a compact shape over ear, sweet pillows of sound in ear. I need all the sound in my head or earbuds. Because the pain is worth it. All right. So I think Alan went first last time, so I'm going to go with you, Joe. What say you? What's your choice? What do In you ear
2: think? at
0: 37%. In ear, 37%. You're wrong. Yep. All right. Wrong. You're all right.
2: <laughs> you think it's 80? I'm
0: going to say over ear at 33%. All right. In ear at 37 versus over. Over ear at 33, right? All right. Well, I will say this. Alan did have the more popular choice, and by Price is Right rules, he is today's winner.
1: Sweet. I even
0: came in under. Yep. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Over ear. I I mean, really, I I think that my description there pretty much summed it up. It was the sweet (laughs) pillows of sound. As you could see. Uh, yeah. 44% of the vote.
1: I I mean, when I used to do the headphone review things, every request was for an over ear set of headphones. And honestly, from a developer standpoint, the reason why I think this makes more sense. Have you ever been sitting in an office when you had stuff in your ears and somebody comes by and taps you on your shoulder? You're like, hold on. Right.
0: (laughs) You know. Whereas with the over ears, you're just like, what do you need, dude? I I don't even think it matters if you're a developer that, that, the in-ears, especially depending on uh, the tips that you have on them, like if you have the comply tips, you know, the soft, uh, fo- squishy foam ones where you got to like roll it up and then stuff it in your ear and then it expands. <laughs> I mean, those are, those sound amazing, but they're annoying oh. if you have to have any conversation with anybody or if there's even the chance that you might have to have a conversation yep. with anybody else.
1: Yep. So, I, I mean, in fairness, that's kind of what I was thinking is, is a lot of people are working in an office environment, and it's just kind of a pain to pull them in and out, whereas with just a set of headphones, you'll just pop them off your ears and throw them around your neck.
0: Mm-hmm. So. Well, I was thinking of a plane environment, so I wasn't thinking of an office. Because uh, I used, oh, to, oh, I used to travel with uh, the in-ears, and anytime, you know, a flight attendant would come by and ask him, you're like, wait, what? Hold on. And then you'd have yeah. to do that same thing.
2: You so. still have to do that with the over And if you get a phone call, you just click a little button, and now you're talking volume up, volume down, like right here. over have that's that, nice, too. It fits in your pocket man, when you go fits. to Publix.
1: over have that, too, man. We're not in 1980s. Come on now. No, man.
2: <laughs> if you if you go around walking around in the grocery store with the uh, over years around your neck, you like...
1: Oh, dude, that's actually a thing, though. So if you look around... Yeah, if you're 16... Dude, that's what I'm saying. Like people actually like headphones are like the new you remember Nikes back in the day? Like that was like if people was wearing a set if they were wearing a set of Air Jordans, like that was their status symbol, right? Nowadays having that Beats logo on the side of your head, like that's that's part of the get up.
2: Have you seen me? I would look ridiculous walking around beats in the grocery store, <laughs> like buying my freaking like fiber one, whatever.
0: <laughs> Dude, those Produced. are horrible. But no, <laughs> 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 do, you, do you care to take a be, uh, guess at what you think second place was? Uh, in-ears.
1: Yep. Yeah.
2: 25%. If it's earbuds, it's only because people got them mixed up with in-ears. There's no other solution.
0: So so you're going to go from in-ear to earbuds for a second place? Yep. Do you want to put it uh, in no,
2: oh, no, I'm going to stick with in-ear, sorry.
0: In-ears. Oh, oh okay, so... D- both of you got have the same guess. Then twenty five. It's going to come down to the percent. Alan says twenty five. What's yours?
2: Eighteen.
0: Eighteen. All right. Well, you both you both were wrong. We went over. It was earbuds. Wow. No man. Yeah. Only because
2: people
1: were confused about that's an ear and earbuds. Yeah, because nobody likes earbuds.
0: <laughs> uh, no, I. You know what? I think you're wrong. I can't. I, believe I think it. that. I. I mean, it was the strongest. It was a strong second place too. At 39%. Man, that's what it is. People don't know because. No, 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 because you made such an effort to explain it last time. I think that it's not a matter of people didn't understand what the question was. I think it's just that it's either convenience or laziness or just frugalness that, you know, it, it was the it easy choice. Phone. Right. Right. Now, I will say, I have not tried the new
1: whatever comes with the iPhone. I hear that those are pretty good, but the ones that came with like the old iPods that were like the size of a speaker that you would cram into your, no. What are the new
0: ones called? Ear, ear pods ear or something? Ear pods like, or something. yeah. No, I don't, the new design is just as awful as the old design, in my it? opinion.
1: Man, look, I, I almost feel like this should be, you know, like save a child, like save some ears. I feel like we <laughs> should start some sort of,
0: <laughs> like some, some For sort For less of than thing. a cup of
1: coffee a day. <laughs> yes, we can save
0: your ears. So, anyways, all right. Well, that means that we have to have a new survey for this episode. So, I thought it would be funny. Uh, when we said invariant earlier, did you know what it meant? Oh, your choices are yep or nope. <laughs>
2: <laughs> do we do we give a don't care? <laughs> no, you can't do that. No, it's got to be, yep be yep or nope. nope. Yep,
0: you yep either nope. knew right. it or you didn't. If, yep you, if nope. you were like the three of us and you had to look it up, you're in the nope. Right. I totally felt better when you guys were like, hold on, let me, I was like, oh, okay. Well, <laughs> it felt good to know that I was in good company. I don't know if it made me feel any better to know that I didn't know it.
1: <laughs> hey, hey, honestly, the first time you heard item potent in the past couple of years, were you like, you mispronounced that? What? you? <laughs> don't
2: talk to me like that.
0: What you... No. Right. <laughs> No, why are well, you? why talking you come to me? over here and say that? Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right, we're. <laughs> I want to do. I want to do one quick uh, Google feud, though. Oh yes, yes. One quick one. We. we you, this was. You guys really enjoyed this one last time, so I thought, okay, well, we got to do. We got to do it one time. How to program, blank. Minecraft minecraft that's a good one man that
1: that is really that kind of hurts me
0: Mm -hmm. how to program for iphone both good choices number one google suggestion is adreno not for me (laughs) what no how to program adreno no mine says up as how to program raspberry pi was number two for me Hey, listen, I'm the guy calling out the question here, okay? We go by my computer. Oh, man. What the, the, now, next the third one, <laughs> one is hilarious because it's how to program the DirecTV remote to TV. That's
1: ridiculous. Apparently, yeah, that's my their one. DirecTV remote is ridiculous. It's got a few buttons. Oh, yep. oh, 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 speaking of, I have to do this because it's not in my tip of the week. But So, I went to streaming only, and this is completely random, but... So I dropped DirecTV. I looked at my bill, and it made me mad. I had no idea I was paying that much every month, right? So I, I dropped it. So I went to streaming only.
0: <laughs> you had no idea?
1: <laughs> no, I didn't. I mean, that's the thing. When you have things auto-pay, you're just like, okay, I have no money. I don't know why. But, <laughs> but at any rate, so, so I switched over to, to PlayStation View, which I'm pleasantly surprised with until I left my house, and I tried to turn it on, and it's like, oh, you're not on your home network. You can't watch this. Dude, I was mad, like straight up mad. I'm like, man, I, this is a problem. <laughs> one of the reasons I wanted to stream was I could go anywhere and do it. They check to make sure that you're on your network. So here's a little pro tip for you. If you have a decent router, a pretty nice one, a lot of them have VPN built into them. So you can basically set a set of keys, put them on your phone, put that VPN client on your phone, VPN into your house and stream just like you were at home. So if you get mad like me and you buy something like PlayStation view, that won't let you stream outside of your home network, VPN back to your router and it will use your internet connection at home to stream back to you. It's beautiful. That's a lot of work to watch the real housewives of Kennesaw. It's not that bad, man. It's really not that bad. It's gotta be secure. It's really not that bad. Yeah. You know,
0: I, I've been a Sling customer for a while, and I haven't had that problem with Sling. So Play- it is it is going to vary by. It does and now there's a, Hulu has just recently announced their new live TV streaming. Yep. And YouTube is supposed to be coming out with theirs here uh, later this year. And you know the beautiful part about this is so first I went with the PlayStation because it had like a really
1: good set of things that I was interested in. And their device support was like about the best there was outside of it. it of course, they're not going to do the Xbox, but, but outside of that, it worked on basically every device. And I was like, cool. But what I like about this whole thing is unlike cable, you're not locked into some crazy term contract. If, if YouTube comes out with theirs next month, Hey, guess what? All I'm right. going to stop this one. And I'm going to go try that because it's not like you have this contract. You just say, Oh, I'm done with it. Right. Yep. That's so sweet. So, but yeah, that was something I found out about the PlayStation view after I got it was, Oh no, it locks you into your home network, but not if you have a router with VPN. Right. So (laughs) anyways, sorry. Sidebar. (laughs) This episode is sponsored by Linode cloud hosting for developers with high performance SSD Linux servers for all your infrastructure needs. For $5 a month, you can get a gig of RAM, one CPU core, 20 gigs of SSD space. That's more than what most other hosting competitors offer for the same price. They have nine data centers across the world, including Asia Pacific, North America, and Europe. Linode has simple control panel for managing your hosting, and they even have an API for your automation needs. Go to www.codingblocks.net slash Linode, that's L-I-N-O-D-E, to get started with
0: Linode today. All right, so let's wrap up our conversation tonight with repositories, right? So there was this one statement that he has in the book about repositories represent all objects of a certain type as a conceptual set and that they and it acts as a collection except with more elaborate querying capability. And I I found that to be a curious statement like I I didn't to be honest with you, like when I read that, I'm like, I what? No, because like w- we've talked about the repository pattern before, right? And when we've talked about the repository pattern before, did anything I previously said did that register with you? No, not really, because it's usually
1: just some sort of transport object, right, or, or a transport method, is what you're thinking about.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess if I had to put it in. In my own words, I would think about it as like it focuses on the CRUD portions, right? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I had a hard time kind of like wrapping my head around parts of this, uh, at least from this approach, right? But then I, I think I later came back to being like, okay, I think I'm, I think I'm on board. I think I'm better, right? So when we talk about repositories, you know, as I as I kind of alluded to with the CRUD operations, we're we're talking about uh, objects that that focus on persistence, they care about the persistence, right? And this allows your client to be focused on the model. It doesn't have to worry about what's needed to retrieve the objects, it doesn't need to worry about what's necessary to uh, persist the objects, it just has to worry about, you know, the objects in general and how it might want to use those, right? And the, the repository is going to retrieve whatever requested object uh, and it's going to do so in a way that's going to encapsulate any of the machinery behind the scenes right anything that's necessary to to query to get that data as well as and this is what i found really curious mapping the data back to an object all right and Kind of, you know, going back to what Joe was saying, right? The repositories can use factories to do the actual object creation. But when I think about the mapping of the data, if we talk about, we, t- we talked about possibly creating like some kind of a specification object or a configuration object that would, um, I really want to stay away from the speci- the term specification, at least for this portion. So, you know, if we pass in a configuration object to that factory, that factory method, Right that thing knows that like, hey, whatever data I got from this particular uh, record or column, it is supposed to represent this particular type of thing or this particular property of whatever my final object is. So, uh, you know, going back to our car example, maybe uh, this particular column represents the engine size. uh, This particular column represents the car color, uh, things like that, right? And... Generally, uh, we would just have our our repositories implement a common interface so that those CRUD operations are kind of consistent among the repositories, right? And we might have multiple repositories spread out uh, through throughout the the application to create this um, specific things.
1: And when you're talking about the interface, we're talking about things like create, uh, save or 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 maybe save get update that kind of stuff right those are the common interfaces yeah, I we're mean, typically talking about Yeah I your the method names
0: may vary right like if you wanted to just you know create read update delete or you could do add save update whatever you know change you know wh- whatever but yes it would be some basic set of operations that would uh, exist across your repository so you you know again you might have multiple repositories right now <laughs> But this was another one of those points where, like, it took me it took me a moment to grasp what he was getting at because I said you could have multiple repositories, but he goes on to say like you could have multiple repositories for each type, but not necessarily each class. Hmm. And I was like, well, wait a minute, wait what? A, a class is a type. What do you mean? <laughs> How can you have multiple repositories? You can have a repository for every type. But not a repository for every class, which sounded at first like like kind of a confusing statement. But what he was getting at though is that you might have repositories at like an abstract level or a base class level um, that that they don't care about the individual's specifics, right? So, um, you know, carrying on with the the car example, um, you know. You might just have a repository for like, uh, read car or say you know update car, right? But it doesn't. It, it's not going to uh, read in. You know you don't need a class, a repository class specifically for Ferrari. You don't need a, a Ferrari repository dot get car right? You just, the car repository could be generic enough. And then, and specifically in this portion of the, the book, the examples that he gave was related to stocks. So you might have like a, a trade order and that's the base for a buy order or a sell order. So your repository is the, uh, trade repository, trade order repository, and it doesn't care if it's a buy or sell, right? Um, so, so then, once I kind of grasped my head around that, it kind of made a little bit more sense what he meant about you know a repository for each type but not each class yep. right um, and then you know re- your repository can offer many ways to query for a specific type of yeah
2: and, and I was going to ask you about this when you talked about implementing a common interface with basic reads is like well what if I want um, Every Ferrari made after 1979, but before 1987.
0: So he goes into, and this is why I said, I I wanted to be careful about the use of the word specification as it related to this portion, because he brought up this really (laughs) interesting concept. It was at least new to me. I I hadn't seen this elsewhere, elsewhere, but he did reference, you know, many other places where they talked about, uh, you know, I think there was like a, a Martin Fowler example that he referenced you know, from, you know, I don't know, more than a decade ago uh, that I hadn't heard about. But basically, it was you have this specification kind of type or language that you can use that to define what it is you want without actually hard coding a query into your your code. So he gives this example of where you have this criteria object. And in your criteria object, you would say uh, criteria dot equal, and you would pass in Uh, what I assumed to be an enum value, and then what the actual value of it was that you wanted. And then you're allowing your repository object to actually be responsible for the construction of the query, because it's the only thing that should know the actual internals, right? Because, you know, going back to what I said before, it's encapsulating the machinery to do that query, right? Um, So I thought that was an interesting concept, too, because, you know, I mean, you know, guilty, how many times have we talked about, or how many times have you just, like, wrote a query to do that, right, instead of the specification?
1: Yeah, this repository is basically your translation layer at that point, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, but when we've talked about repositories in the past, though, I kind of pictured them more generic than what the level he was getting to in here. And so that part was a little bit more of like, oh, yeah, that that makes sense that you you might have... Many repositories, um, you know, for each of the different things. So, so going back to our order uh, e-commerce example, right? You'd have an uh, an order repository that would be responsible for knowing how to query. And if you wanted to to get a specific query, I mean, a specific order ID, uh, you know, you might have a a specification object that you could pass in where you could say, like, uh, you know, where the criteria is you know equals um, order dot ID and then some value, right? Um. So I thought that was a, that was a pretty interesting approach, and I actually want to follow up more a little bit more on that specification uh idea. It sounds like an iQueryable, like what it. It sounds
1: similar to that whole notion when you look at like Entity Framework, that kind of. But no,
0: because iQueryable is just chaining it together there, right? Right, and that's, then.
1: Yeah, so that's the reason why I think about it like that, because you can keep adding to an iQueryable. I'm sure that the specification
0: object's a little bit different. you meant just the fact that you could have the specification object and just keep... Yes. um, You're basically just adding in additional portions to the predicate. Yep,
1: and then your repository would be responsible for taking that and translating it into whatever query language needed to go get either it from a relational database or you know some sort of document db or whatever but but yeah that's that's kind of what happens in my head is i'm like oh well that'd be amazing if you could just say dot where and dot where and you know so
2: yeah that's what i kind of imagining it's like you have a specification object you know like dot add filter right and you say uh you know model and then you know, you have a, even one for like a one for the uh, the qualifier. So you could say equals or like or greater than or less than, and then you have the actual value that you pass. But I think I like your way of saying it even better where you can kind of use those, um, those link style methods uh, to do those afters or where's or whatever, which is really nice to kind of chain those together so and have like a fluent style interface, which is just a nice way of, uh, nice implementation detail, I guess.
0: Yep. And, you know, another uh, advantage to doing it that way though too is that, uh, you know, if you just had a hard-coded string, there's no type checking on that. Whereas at least if you were to do the specification, you'd at least have some type safety around what your what your logic is trying to do. Right. <laughs> now, whether or not the repository implemented it correctly, that's up to you, I suppose. But, uh, yeah. I like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, <sighs> Yeah, so, so by doing this, there's some benefits to using the repository pattern, right? You, you allow your client, by going through this repository, to talk in what he calls a, an intention-revealing language, right? Which, going back, you know, we've already made an, uh, comparisons back to the Clean Code series. This is right up there, right? Like, you have a method that would be named kind of similar to what you... Uh, you know, what you're, what you're wanting to get. Right. You might have, um, you know, I mean, going back to the order example, that's a simple enough example. You might just have one that's like, uh, order repository get by order ID. Right. I know we've seen those kind of patterns before customer dot get by customer ID or something like that. Right. Or customer repository dot get by customer ID.
1: So b- before we go too much further on this part, I just want, I want to make sure I totally understand this. So When we're talking about the repository pattern in terms of this domain driven design, we're really saying though, this repository is responsible of building up the entire aggregate, right? So as opposed to something like entity framework, if you just had these, these uh, regular models that you had, right? Like, so let's go to the order and the order details type thing. Typically, if you just had your ORM, you'd say, give me the order, it would go load that information into a model, right? And then if you wanted to get the order line items, then typically you'd probably go back to a repository and say load up the the order line items. It sounds like these repositories are a little bit smarter, right? Like these aren't just, hey, let me hydrate these objects with some information. This is, oh, you want an order aggregate? Okay, I'm going to get you that information and all the sub-aggregate information that belongs inside that object as well, right?
0: Yeah, that's the way I took this. This is not like... Um, and, and that's where the, uh, intention revealing language comes in, right? This is not saying like, uh, you know, Ferrari dot create something. This is saying Ferrari, you know, create a California, right? Right. Like you're, you're more specific in this type of example, right? Um, and, and that's where like you're promoting your design decisions, uh, in this repository. Pattern. So, so let me back
1: up then. So what you just said means that what we're saying now is this repository gets a request. It's going to then call a factory, which is going to hide, well,
0: can hand a factory
1: would probably typically call a factory and, and, and create this route is the repository then responsible for filling in the details or does it pass any information along it needs to the factory?
2: should all be in the factory.
1: Okay, so it's all in the factory. So this repository is really responsible for going and getting all the data that's needed for the factory to do its job.
0: It's getting the data, but it's mapping that data to the things that the factory needs to know. Okay. Right? Like the 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 repository knows how to read off of disk a particular piece of data and that that data is supposed to represent the engine size, but it doesn't know like how to create the engine. Right. Necessarily. Right. So it can use the factory, but it doesn't have to necessarily. So this,
1: all right, this, this kind of makes sense then. So it is very similar to the repository pattern that we've talked about in the very. past, except that it might need to get more data than what it
0: typically would have for any particular thing, because now it's gathering the data for the aggregate route. That's where a lot of this, a lot of this DDD discussion that we've had so far, like goes back to where we, kind of started this whole series where we talked about like how we did things in the past yep. and that we might just like create some table and then create some object to represent that table. Whereas this is saying like, you know, um, and, and at that time too, we might have created a repository for that specific thing, that specific table. But this is going more high level than that and saying like, okay, your repository is going to be creating something that might span tables, yep. right? That, that data could span tables to create, but it's going to know what it needs in order to you know what? Where to get it, how to get it, and the mechanics behind it.
2: Okay, beautiful. Right? Yeah, it scares me though. Was it scary? I hate that he was saying like, "Hey, give me the you know the latest thousand orders," and it going and going and fetching all the uh, order items and maybe the tax info and all sorts of other stuff I don't care about. But I guess in that case, I would create some sort of like order sur- summary object that might have its own repository that's a little lighter weight. I don't think you'd use it that way though.
1: I I may be wrong, but it sounds like you're almost talking about well. <laughs> Let me, let me rephrase. I guess it depends on the use case, right? Like the whole purpose of this domain, this order domain, is to do something on the order. So you only load up a 1,000 orders if you needed to process the payment on them or something like that, right? You're not going to load it up to just view it on the screen because that's not the use case for it. The use case is you might use a regular DTO just to get report stuff on a screen, you're only going to load up these these domain specific type objects when you're trying to get a particular behavior done,
2: right? Yeah. So when do I? Where do I get that DTO from? Is there a is there a repository for the DTO?
1: So if, this I, this goes into a later chapter. I uh, and I only cursory know a little bit about some of this stuff, so I might even speak a little bit wrong on this. But basically. You'll still have like your your standard DTOs that might map to database objects, right? Because those are still useful in applications. But then there's a translation layer, and I forget what they called it. Um, it was it was a bizarre Service. name. Uh, it wasn't the consistency or something like that. But but at any rate. I mentioned it in the last episode and I can't, I can't remember what it's called right now.
0: Yeah. The,
1: the anti-corruption layer. There you go. So basically what would happen then is if those orders needed to get in, they could come across just from a true, uh, the repositories that we've known in the past that literally are just kind of getters. Right. And it would throw it into these objects. And if you needed to do any behaviors on that, you would have this anti-corruption layer that would transfer it from that DTO into this domain model object. So I hope that kind of paints a little bit fuller picture in that yep. these domain objects that we're talking about are created to do specific, it's, we've said it several times, it's just focused on the behavior that you need it to do. Whereas the other stuff that we've all done in our entire careers and a lot of patterns that everybody sees is, it's literally just, hey, let's move it in and out of the database and we'll do any kind of you know stuff that we need to down here. This is more, what do we need it to do? And so there are translation layers for that,
0: but yeah, if also, I'm reporting, yeah, go ahead.
2: Uh, if I'm you know doing some sort of report or something, seeing the last uh, you know let's say the last thousand unpaid orders or something, I don't want to manipulate that stuff. I don't want to get that DTO, change the value, and try to save it again. It doesn't make sense to have it uh, a repository because it's not really meant to be used for that. So uh, that that makes sense to me. And so if I think of the the repositories as being lighter weight than pulling back thousands of records or doing um, you know ETL type stuff.
0: Well, let's go back to the, what we've talked about before, which is that you might have similar named objects, right, but in different namespaces that serve different purposes. So, you know, your order summary or, uh, you know, you might call it something else, um, you know, is probably better than having you probably wouldn't want or need to pull back the entire order object at that summary level for what you're talking about, because right. they actually talk about like, you know, some of the common problems around that around this is like maybe pulling in too much data. And he gives an example of uh, one project where they had a, a method that returned all objects and they couldn't figure out why their web sphere environment would only run a couple hours before it would run out of memory. And they eventually found that, Oh, this all objects, you know, method was getting called. And so they were basically loading the entire database into memory wow. and you know, everything went sideways at that point. Right. So, you know, you'd probably have a different type for that. You, you wouldn't use the same order repository as where I'm going with that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and and doing the reporting thing too, like just thinking about that a lot of times you're not even the DTO. So somebody told me this a long time ago, because I used to stress about this thing, right? Like Man, I don't want to create some sort of object just to do a report on the page because then I'm spinning up a bunch of objects. But, but guys, remember, anytime you pull at least in C sharp world, and I'm sure in all other worlds, if you're pulling back a data table, you're still creating a bunch of objects, right? It's an enum of of objects, is all, and it's got a bunch of type information on it, whether it's the data type, the length, all that kind of stuff. So, so we have a tendency to think about, well, I don't want to create all these objects, but even the mechanisms that we're already using, do it
0: anyways. Yeah. Gotcha. So, uh, you know, just continuing along with the benefits of, of this pattern is that, you know, you're going to promote your separation of concerns here, right? This is the one thing that knows about how that data has persisted. And this kind of goes back to, uh, where I said, you know, Joe's example that I can't remember right now where he, it was going. Oh, the JSON. I believe it was a JSON example. Uh, the mm-hmm. deserialization, right? We're kind of getting into a gray area because really the repository is the guy that should know that that thing is coming from JSON, right? And it should be the repository's pattern to be able to m- do the mapping back to say like, hey, this is the piece piece of data that's supposed to represent the order ID. This is the piece of data that's supposed to represent the customer's name or you know whatever, right? Right. And and by doing this, this also promotes testability within your application too, because you could actually have your repositories return back dummy objects, right? Mock data. Love it. You could swap yep. them out because they're driven off interfaces, right? Uh, he doesn't really get into that part in terms of like like dependency injection or anything like that. Okay. But you know, just the fact that y- because you don't know the mechanics behind what's how the data is being created, then you could have uh, a repository that just returns back some kind of dummy data that would allow you to do testing on it. Okay. Right? So you know, there was a, a quick summary of of the last two portions here of you know the repositories versus the factories. The factories were responsible for creating the new objects, whereas the repositories are responsible for finding uh, and updating objects. Right, and the repositories can use the factories to create the objects, um, and then you know, I've, as I said before already, the factories don't deal with the persistence of the object, um, but the repositories do. That's an excellent summary. So yeah, I yeah. mean, in large part, like the repositories that we're talked about here are, you're more. This was an easier section to kind of comprehend it was more you know in in regards to like the repository patterns that we've already talked about except instead of being at the granular level that we may have thought about them in the past this is more higher level
1: well i think the factories and the repositories really sort of put together what that aggregate root is supposed to be right like these things are taking care of all the the tertiary the the the, the side stuff that aggregate root just cares about its behavior right and so these are facilitating that so that you can literally keep all your code clean right your your logic's down there at your aggregate root your factories are creating these things and your repositories are hydrating and that's that 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 makes it a little bit easier at least for me to to comprehend and and know how all these things come together so that pretty much right. that that wrapped
2: all these right Yeah, I think it pretty much ties it all up. You know, we talked about the uh, the life cycle of objects, where they come from, where they go, how are they maintained. We we, uh, gave a couple guidelines and uh, talked about some right ways to do things and uh, talked about some kind of uh, overlap with some interesting patterns that we're already familiar with.
0: Yeah, so we'll have in the resources we like section, we'll have uh, several links to, um, there's some great Pluralsight courses on this topic. Uh, There's a Course, the book itself by Eric Evans, as well as uh, his site uh, for this topic domainlanguage.com, and, and then there's the DDD community.org. So, with that, let's get into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. Yeah, baby.
2: All right, and uh, I'm first this time, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Sonar Cube. It's an open source static analysis tool that's easy to plug into your pipeline. It's so easy, in fact, that a lot of tools like VSTS or um, even GitHub has some nice integration where you can kind of uh, checkbox it if you want to run it. Um, and it is an open source project, but if you're going to be running on their servers, then uh, you're probably going to end up paying something. But they've got really nice support for um, Java, C Sharp, C++, uh, even JavaScript, however that works. And uh, it even gives you cool stuff like debt estimates like we've talked about before with endpend. Uh, and you can check that out at uh, sonarcube.org.
1: Yeah, Excelente. All right, so I've got two today only because one's really a tip and the other one's just some information. So uh, multiple stops on the same line. I just noticed this the other day. So Chrome Debugger, if you crack that thing open, you put a stop point on a line. And in the past, if you had like – object chaining where you had something dot something dot something dot something it would basically just skip over the entire line or just run whatever that last function was on the line right maybe or or, so if you were like f11ing into it it would typically
0: just hit that last one well no let's let's be careful it would you would get one blue line yes and if you had like uh some object dot get method, dot, get method, dot, get method. You would go into all of them, but you couldn't get to the last one directly. Okay, okay, that's what it was. Now, it will actually
1: put little blue arrows Mm -hmm. all across it at each one of the dots so
0: that you can... You can either skip over it or you can step into it or what it's just amazing. Or you can just move like whichever one is the darker blue is where it's going to its first stop is going to be and the yep. lighter blues are the ones that it will eventually get to. You can move the darker blue. It's beautiful.
2: Like uh, Wait, how do you do I, this? I, Say what? This is in
1: 2017? No, 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 this is in Chrome. Developer tools. In Chrome. All right. Yeah, dude, it's sweet. So, if you put a breakpoint in there, <laughs> His hand, his response was like, Chrome? <laughs> what, Who develops
0: in Chrome? What's this
1: thing? No, no, it's beautiful. So a lot of people will still do alerts and all that kind of stuff. Like you're really selling yourself short. You use the breakpoints and whatnot in, in the developer tools in the browser if you're doing web development. It, I mean, I the Chrome developer tools just get better and better like all the time. So anyway, that, that was an awesome one that I just stumbled upon this past week. And then the other one that maybe some of you people out there will get excited about is docker linux images on windows so it was actually released a couple months ago at dockercon that there is this thing called linux kit for, that's being released for docker that will allow you to run linux based docker images on windows server or on windows i people are already doing it on windows 10 So this will open up an incredible world of possibilities when you start thinking about being able to, I mean, Microsoft has come a long way, right? The the fact that they're even embracing this stuff, but there has been the ability to run Docker images in a Hyper-V setup, but that means that you have to have bare metal access to do it. This opens things up a little bit further to where you could even have a Windows server running in a VM and then potentially be able to run your Docker images in your Windows server that are Linux based so I, I wanted to share cool. this because it's really cool they have uh, I have the links to the GitHub thing here that will give you directions on how to create these Docker images that you can run in the various different places I, I haven't really gone and played with it enough but I don't think it's 100% like production ready yet but super cool
0: you know yeah, that's nice go ahead Joe No, oh, all you you mentioned uh, you know Linux on Windows, and uh, you know it already being there, maybe with for Windows 10, and it it, it brought back this thought uh, related to the build keynote that came out about uh, now your different distributions of Linux being available in the Windows Store. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> for the we've talked about the Windows Subsystem for Linux. Oh. Oh, that reminds me, the laptops
1: on the review, the thing that was annoying, they both came with Windows Home. Mm-hmm. You can't mm-hmm. run Docker on Windows Home. It has to be on Windows Professional. Well, oh, it drove me crazy. I tried to set it up. So at any rate, just know that if you're trying to do a development machine, Windows Professional has all the features that you need to be able to do that kind of Dockerization and Linux and all that kind of stuff. So
0: anyways. you didn't just upgrade it? I didn't know which one I was going to keep, but I didn't want to go to the not for burning
1: laptops. Laptops. <laughs> <laughs> lap I thought you were
0: just going to like blow it away and install Linux on both of them. Oh man, too much work. <laughs> use that as the host v- host <laughs> operating system, and Windows as the VM KVM in it, or use K- ESXI. So uh, here's a nice little tip for you: shallow cloning with Git. So. If you ever have to get like a large repository, sometimes you don't need all of that old history. So when you do your clone, you could just do a get clone dash dash depth one and then the repository URL and you can just get the most recent head of that repository. And it's going to be a much faster pull for you. Especially if you've got gigs
2: of stuff. Yeah, that's nice.
0: Yeah. Now, I will say that depending on your version of Git, uh, this functionality was more limited in versions prior to 1.9. So, you know, if you are behind for some reason, uh, one, what are you doing? <laughs> Upgrade. And, uh, you know, yeah. So just know that. Excellent. Gotta say,
2: still? though, I'm still in love with the, the idea of wiping your repository every year. So once a year, have a code of forgiveness day, get drunk, <laughs> Just you know, check in whenever you want and uh,
0: get rid of holes, all history.
2: Oh, no holes. Bye. Bye repo.
0: Yeah. That, that, that work well in large scale. Get repos like windows. <laughs> <laughs> uh. All right. Well with that, we thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher and more using your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, be sure to leave us a review by visiting www.codingblocks.net slash review.
1: And while you're up there, check out our show notes, examples, discussions, and more.
2: And send your feedback questions for answers to the Slack channel, codingblocks.slack.com. And uh, follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks or head over to CodingBlocks.net and find all our social links at the top of the page. I think Joe's being
1: held up by his microphone right now. It's <laughs> ridiculous. I was, I was yawning at like back. 6
2: p.m. It's because I had pizza, man. I broke my diet. I had pizza.
1: Oh, you shouldn't have done that, man.
2: It was good, though. <laughs> <laughs> it was real good.
0: Shame. You're going to have to take the walk of shame now. Just walking down yep. the the uh, the sidewalk. Shame.
1: Hey, shame. hey yep. your birthday was the second, right?
0: Uh, Yeah. Did you
1: eat cake and all that, too? No, I didn't. You didn't, dude. My, my birthday, I, it was bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was bad.
0: <laughs> you just, the way he's saying that, you just picture like there he is on the floor. There's like cake all over his face. His fingers have icing of all kinds of different colors. Just, and he's just passed out from a sugar high. Were you there?
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> it, it wasn't too far off. Uh I'm still, I'm still reeling from my bad Ice Cube impersonation. <laughs> oh, was that what that was? What? I didn't
1: know. I didn't what? I didn't know. Jeez. It's
0: his birthday coming up, man. I, I, I got nothing. Come on, man. Come on, man. How? On, man. how <laughs> I feel like. How is it that <laughs> that album cannot be part? of Of your of your history, man. That's it. Probably was, but I couldn't tell you
1: anything about any album that was part of my history. Right? I mean, I know I made some mixtapes for some girls back in the day, but that's about it. (laughs) Mixtapes, yeah, man. Sit there in front of the radio for hours, like, oh my Mm -hmm. god, this song's got to play eventually. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> Man, uh, kids got it easy nowadays. You want to make a mixtape, you just go to Spotify.
0: <laughs> no, they don't even do that. They just go to YouTube. Right? You send yeah. a link. Man, we had to work for it back in the day. Here's a playlist of YouTube videos I put together. <laughs> right.
2: No, I mean, someone else put together, but it really expresses my <laughs> mood. <laughs>